0: We'll mm-hmm. episode 134 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Scott Shelton. And today on the podcast, we've donned our customary tuxedos and we're ready to have an award show uh, because today is the annual Some Like It, Scott Awards, the third annual, as a matter of fact, uh, where we will be doing our attempt uh, at bettering the Oscars uh, by picking our choices for the best performances, technical, aspects and moments uh, from the year 2020 in film. It will be sort of our uh, farewell to the year 2020 in film as we'll be moving on uh, properly next week to 2021 with our most anticipated movies. Um, But first, Scott, we do have an awards uh, ceremony here of sorts to, uh, to have. How are you feeling about that? How are you feeling in general?
1: Yeah, I'm just hoping my stand up that uh, the start doesn't crash and burn uh, Yeah, like it has in past Your years. Type 5,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, type 5 exactly. Uh, no, I'm doing well. It's uh the end of March and so I actually <laughs> I guess didn't realize I'm completely cuz cuz I've been working pretty hard the last couple of weeks for a big meeting coming up at work. I've just forgotten that as of recording when this podcast is released it'll be my birthday. So there you go. Happy birthday to me. And, wow, uh, yeah,
0: happy- no, that's true. That is coming up, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I completely forgot about it until just... I mean, I didn't forget that it was my birthday, but I i didn't make the connection necessarily until until just now. But uh, yeah, well, look... it will I'm, have already
0: happened when you hear this, but...
1: No, no, it'll come out on Thursday, so that's, that'll be when my birthday is, so... Oh, I guess, yeah, it'll, okay. It if you're really listening to it on the day it comes out, then uh, it'll be my birthday. I can't keep
0: up with the release schedule anymore, but yeah.
1: Yeah, neither can I. So, <laughs> <laughs> as is evidenced by our erratic <laughs> release schedule. It is what it is. Yeah, I mean, look, we're all... We're, We're all, not big uh, enough
0: to where it's a big deal or anything. Yeah, Well
1: I mean, it still comes out on Thursdays every week, but we all yeah. have jobs, so like you know, uh, sometimes it gets the better of of both of us. And R.I.P. to our newsletter. Uh, it was fun while it lasted.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, look. Uh, One day I, it'll I come back, anyone, maybe. I don't think anyone misses it that much, but yeah, it's no, it's uh, no stretch to say that. It I had people me about it very... all the time
1: though. I remember that one time. I that hope one you're time kidding. Someone, about that. Yeah, one time somebody. No, mentioned. no, no, no. There was one time where someone, one of my coworkers who was on was on the distribution, uh, mess, messaged me when you talked about get finally getting a job, um, in North Carolina. They texted me like, "Wait, what? You got a job?" And I was like, at that point, cool, I I gotten, at that point, it. I hadn't gotten a new job. Um, but uh, it was funny because I don't think I, I don't think I had read the newsletter yet, and I was like really confused why they were texting me about. I was like, that'd be news to me if I got a new job. Although I wouldn't complain. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, oh, you did was, eventually
0: uh, get a new job. I did eventually get a new job. You to get there, yeah.
1: It took a couple months more than it took you. So.
0: All right. Well, now that we've roasted all of the uh, celebrities in attendance here yeah. uh, at our podcast recording, Scott, I think we might as well just get to some of the awards because we certainly have plenty of them to get through. Yeah. As is tr- tradition, we will be going through some of the traditional Oscar categories first. And then towards the end of the show, we will get into a few categories that are sort of our own creation that we like to uh, use to spice spice things up a little bit. Uh, yeah. Every year, so but Scott, let's start with those traditional Oscar categories, and we're going to start quickly with visual effects. We uh, we both actually picked the same winner for this uh, award this year, um, and it didn't seem like you know there were clear honorable mentions. It was a weird year, obviously, with uh, a lot, most blockbusters not coming out, uh, but one blockbuster, of course, uh, made many waves and did come out, and it is our joint choice for best visual effects. Scott, why don't you uh, do the honors?
1: Yeah, I mean, look—it's—it's it's not the last time this movie is going to come up. At least when I'm the one talking about my awards, it might be the only time it comes up for you. I don't remember uh, your list from from before when you were when we were typing it out. But it's Tenet. Uh, I'm Not going to bury the lead any more than that. I, I do believe that th- it was nominated uh, in the Academy Awards in this category. Although there are a couple of categories where I find it outrageous it didn't get nominated. Um, but yeah, this one visual effects. I mean, you're talking about you know Christopher Nolan, who's always known for being sort of a master of mixing practical and visual effects, and I think Tenet is is no different than that. And I think what sets it apart for me, you know, this year, and I'd say even in other years too, where this list might be more robust, um, is the fact uh, is it sort of like creativity with how it showed you um, its visuals, right? Uh, of course, cinematography will always be a part of that, but the effects that it does to capture sort of the inversion and you know the the forward and and the and the inverted. Uh, was something that you know I personally had never seen before. I don't know if it's been done before. I'm not going to sit here and say it's the first movie to ever play with time in that way, but the manner in which and the grand scale at which it did those things felt really special, really unique, and for me, felt like a no-brainer that uh, this was going to be the award, taking it home. Um, yeah, I mean, we didn't have a bunch of comic comic book movies this year. Uh, granted, they very rarely win the Best Visual Effects Awards at the Academy Awards. I think it's The last time a comic book movie won for visual effects was like in the two was like Spider Man Two or something like that. Uh, I might be wrong about that, but it's been a long time since a superhero movie won for visual effects is the point. Um, So hey, we'll see if Tenet takes it home at the Oscars too. But that was our uh, unanimous pick. It won't be the only unanimous pick of the day, I don't think. But um, it's it's always nice when we agree on something, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is. And look, Scott, you know I obviously was not as gung ho about Tenet. Uh, as you were, I enjoyed the film quite a bit. Uh, and But the thing that I enjoyed the the most uh, about it was, you know, the action sequences, the visuals. Yeah. Visual effects was sort of the best place, I think, for me to show my appreciation for Tenet because that was the aspect that I probably um, appreciated the most. Um, I, did, I mean, I said at the time, sure. and I stand by, it is some of the most impressive action that I've seen before, um, you know, again, with, the inverted stuff, you know, especially what's going on at the end with, um, you know, this battle taking place between people, move, half the people moving forward, half the people moving backwards. I mean, it's it's really stuff we've never seen before on screen. Um, and, you know, we're, we're seeing it quite often throughout the film. And, um, you know, this movie, not may not, this movie may not have, you know, brought back cinema in the way that um, Christopher Nolan intended. However, I do think people are, are, you know, kind of as people are coming around to this movie, they are, uh, I think, I mean, it seems like people are enjoying this one. This, this of all of Nolan's films, it seems like this one has like the potential to be some sort of like cult hit in a way, because um, I think it is so, it is so complex, um, you know, it is so dense. It is so, um, you know, focused on its story, even more so than your average um, Nolan film um, that I think it's going to alienate some people, but there are others who are just going to, you know, get on board uh, with the zaniness in the end of the movie. And um, also, again, the fact that not a lot of people were able to see this in theaters, I think, adds to it. Um, you know, the effect of it being sort of a sleeper or at least, you know, take, taking a little bit of time for people to really get around to it. But anyway, that's that's my way of saying is that uh, I think Tenet will probably stand the test of time um, better than maybe we would have expected when we first saw it. But or at least I would have. But anyway, um, let's move on, Scott, to uh, another visual category and one you mentioned there, uh, cinematography. Um, And we do have uh, a few honorable mentions for this one. Um, Why don't you share yours?
1: Yeah, look, I've got two honorable mentions. I won't bother mentioning one of them because it would spoil something that you're going to talk about it just, you know, in a few in a few moments. But I will say uh, one of my honorable mentions is Mank. It's a movie that, you know, avid listeners to the podcast will know that we disagree on. But one thing that I think we can agree on is that, you know, it's cinematography you know, I, I don't want to stray too far into like this notion of like production design as well. But the way that, um, d- you know, David Fincher is able to capture everything on the screen and then, of course, sort of, you know, get that in black and white, add the add the touches of cigarette burns on the edges and make it feel really authentic, not just in its production design, but in the way that it's filmed as well. I thought it was something that was really spectacular about the movie It was one of my favorite parts of the film, um, along with a couple other. Uh, Technical aspects, I'll say it was it was it was technically an impressive film. Um, That is one thing that we certainly agreed on when we we reviewed the movie. And cinematography uh, is certainly one of the departments in which it it was that way for me. And yeah, overall, beautiful film um, definitely captures the aesthetic um, uh, uh, of what you'd expect if you were to say, you know it's this notion i always think about this as the notion in video games right like does it play or does it look like what you remembered it when you get like a remaster or a remake of something right and i feel like mank is like if you somehow live during this time period right like it's like what you'd remember it looked like yeah right even if it's probably not actually realistic to what it looked like and i think that's always well, really important
0: yeah and it's obviously very intentional you know yeah. during our fincher series we talked about how meticulous he is And I'm sure that that was uh, very much on his mind. Like you said, when crafting every aspect of this movie is not just going through the motions, making this like a black and white movie, but making it, you know, it, it feeling modern. I don't know, like something like Francis Ha or something like that, which very much feels like a contemporary film, despite being set in black and white no he's he's really wants this to seem like a classic film and you know i think he absolutely accomplishes that i echo your thoughts on mank i also had it as an honorable mention uh the other film uh that i had uh in my honorable mentions category is a movie that will be coming up uh quite a lot for me tonight and that's not a surprise given that it is one of my favorite films of last year and that is uh, possessor by brandon cronenberg uh, kareem hussein providing the uh, cinematography for this movie. Um, And it's just, it's, you know, sets this uh, scene really well, this wonderful sort of steampunk world that is created, um, as well as um, the, you know, with these phantasmagoric sort of body swaps, sequences that are going on. There's these like, the color palettes and everything that they use, these like washed out reds and yellows and everything are really sort of disorienting and jarring to look at. um, And I think, you know, obviously mirrors the physical transformation that is going on in the characters. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think that's it's there are a lot of excellent aspects to the movie, but certainly um, the visual palette, the visual landscape that Kareem Hussein um, lays out, uh, I think uh, cr- creates you know such an atmospheric feel feel to the film, which i I certainly feel that possessor is is a very a- atmospheric film. and I think Hussein's work is. Uh, a big credit to that. Um, Scott, your winner for Best Cinematography.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that it, I feel like Possessor is more cyberpunk than steampunk, but maybe it's some mix. Yeah, uh, yeah
0: you're right. It doesn't necessarily have like the Victorian type thing going on. Cyber, cyberpunk yeah. is probably a better um, descriptor, but yeah, you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, all good. Um, I also wanted to make some joke about David Fincher. Like, I mean, hopefully David Fincher like, didn't make uh, Gary Oldman wear like a Manchester City jersey or anything like that, given he's a Manchester United fan. And, you know, everything went smoothly, <laughs> I heard, on the set of Mank. So there you go.
0: Well, we hear that now. You know, the real stories will come out in ten years or something.
1: That's true. When Gary Oldman's like writing his autobi or like ghost writing, having his autobiography ghost written, and he's just like roasting puncher for making him do exactly. like a, a you know w- wear some Manchester City jersey under the covers of his like sick bed or something in that film. um It's authentic, Gary. Just do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So my my winner. Maybe I teased it a little bit too hard when I was talking about before, but it's tenet. I think that what Hoyt Van Hoytema uh, was able to do with tenet and. and in, in, in unison with sort of the practical and visual effects that we were just talking about is something that, again, I just found the captivating there. I mean, there's a reason why it sounds absurd. I feel like it, it's, it's not meant to be a brag whatsoever when I say this, but like, there's a reason why I saw Tenet five times, you know, in IMAX in theaters. And it's because I just found everything about the movie visually so stunning and so captivating. Sure. Was that enhanced by the fact that we'd been in quarantine for six plus months at the time? It's like, absolutely. It absolutely was. But at the, at, you know, regardless, I kept coming back for it. and I'm wanting to see it again you know, one more time, one more time before things, you know, before left theaters or before things got worse again. And part of that was the way, again, it was, it was able not just to create these visual effects um, that we talked about just, just a second ago, but also how it was able to capture the whole world of tenant, right? Like, yes, it is on the surface, you know, an, an earth at least not too dissimilar from ours, but there's these fantastical elements of the world as well. There's this futuristic technology that's been introduced and you really do need the cinematography to, I think, fully capture, And make the most of the visual effects that we were just talking about. I think you need both. And Hoyt van Hoytema, I think, is, you know, since he's become Nolan's kind of new go to, uh, since Wally Pfister decided to become a director for some reason that no one understands, um, I think he's, he has realized a lot or carried on, I guess, executing Nolan's vision for movies just as effectively, in my opinion, as Wally Pfister was able to do. Um, You know, I don't, you know, Hoyt van Hoytema hasn't won an Academy Award yet. Um, for that work, but I think that it's only a matter of time uh, before something clicks and he gets that award. I don't think Dun- Dunkirk didn't win, right? I don't think so.. Um, movie.
0: I'm not sure if that's one that it won. It didn't win several of the technical Oscars, I think, but I, well, now, now, now sure, that I've said it, I'm
1: it, gonna look it up. So
0: <laughs> regardless, I agree with your point that I think that I was going to make the same point that Ben Hoidema has um, you know f- slipped in very nicely for Wally Fister, um, you know, and and I, and I think captured a lot of what. Pfister was able to do that made, um, you know, so many of the films that he worked on with Nolan so special. But yeah, yeah uh, no no
1: wins, no wins for Hoy- Hoytema. So.
0: Okay. Um, yeah. And, you know, obviously he's not nominated this year. So um, outrageous. Some will consider that a snub for sure. Um, I don't necessarily uh, disagree with those people. I think he probably deserved to be in the five. Um, but my winner for this category is uh, Nomadland. And Joshua James Richards, probably the favorite for the Oscar as well. Um, he is, of course, the the partner, the real-life partner of Chloe Zhao, the director of the film. Um, and yeah, this is just a gorgeous film. You know, I had the pleasure of seeing it on the, the big screen. Um, uh, and I think, you know, this is a movie about the open road, um, and, you know, the American landscape. And I think it would be impossible to tell the sort of, uh, sparse story, um, that is, you know, very sort of heavily driven by its visuals at some times, right? You know, you have these long shots of Frances McDormand walking around uh, these nomad camps, you have, you know, long sequences of her driving. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I think I think it would be hard to capture sort of the nomadic feel of the film, um, if not for, um, you know, the, the big widescreen shots, the big, you know, e- epic shots of sort of, the beauty of American landscape at certain times, because as much as I think there are hardships um, that are depicted in the film, I think this is also a film about appreciating the you know natural beauty that is found, um, particularly in this part of the United States, but all over the United States. Uh, Absolutely. And yeah, Joshua James Richards does a phenomenal job. I certainly won't be sorry to see him win the Oscar because I think, you know, that would be the right choice in the end.
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, I think of of the five that are nominated in the category, I think he'd be my pick. Uh, absolutely, he was my other honorable mention for this category that I uh, skimmed over, and I'm totally on board with you. It, it reminded me a lot of not not a not a narrative feature, but a documentary feature that the two of us saw at Sundance called Cusp. I think a lot of the yeah. sort of sunset um, horizon shots uh, in that, which we I think we'd watched that like a couple weeks before we saw Nomadland um it it did evoke a lot of thoughts about that and and both of those films i mean those are two of the best films that i've seen you know top 10 top 20 that i've seen in the last in the last 12 months and they're absolutely fantastic um films i can't wait for more people to see cusp uh when it does whenever it does get a release a wider release but yeah absolutely great work by by him and i'll be excited for him to win the oscar if it does come true
0: and i can't wait for more people to see nomadland not that you know people aren't watching it but i think you know the best picture bump is very much a real thing um and if it gets that especially win, it's on hulu at,
1: though, right
0: yeah exactly if it gets that win just like parasite last year right parasite won. it was on hulu um yeah. i think if it gets that win as we are expecting it to then uh even more people are going to start watching this movie and i think that's a very very good thing because there's yeah. a lot that people can take away from this movie
1: especially cuz like look as long as you're on you're you know you're out here strong arming your movie clubs to to watch Nomadland then you know more more people are going to see it so there you go
0: Yeah I mean look I uh it is true but I I wanted to watch something sort of Oscar themed and honestly yeah. you know best picture nominee it made sort of the most sense because it is so accessible right it is on Hulu. i would have you know i would have liked to watch judas and the black messiah as well if we're being honest but you know it's off of hbo max now and some of the other films are a little more expensive to rent obviously so definitely uh, it made sense and i'm happy it did because
1: shocked you didn't just say francis hall again
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah i mean look i i would i would gladly watch that movie every couple weeks but i, I think i'd probably yeah. lose my what sparse audience i have left from the movie club <laughs> if i did that so fair enough um, all right scott original score uh who moved you in the world of composers this year let's start with your honorable mentions
1: yeah absolutely so i will again in, in the effort to not spoil your winner skip one of my honorable mentions but i will say that i have a couple for here that that we're not duplicated on on your list. Um, this is actually one of the categories I feel like where we had the least in common in terms of honorable mentions and winners. Like I think we almost exclusively had different ones, except for the one that I'm about to skip. But yeah, my first one is Minari. I think it's a movie that you know I talked a lot about um, on the podcast. Uh, how I felt like this movie was very reminiscent of The Farewell in terms of the experience for me. That I watched the movie. I, you know, I. It was clear to me that it is like a very well made, emotionally raw story. You know, dare I say, authentic? If uh, you know, Sam, if if uh, if if Levinson and you know John David Washington and and Zendaya will allow me to say the word authentic to describe to describe how a movie feels, um, I think that it th- it feels like a very authentic story and it feels that way right and i especially and I, when
0: where you're not the same race as the main exactly characters, yeah
1: right? <laughs> <laughs> precisely not, not just the same race but i have n- no semblance of the same experience yeah uh, as this story that's being told but that aside i, I think that overall this is a movie that i could appreciate for what it was but like on a personal on like a deeply personal level like it just didn't touch me um, the way that it, I think that it has touched a lot of people. And I felt the same way about The Farewell when I watched it back in 2019. I was like, this is a really great film. I don't connect with it um, on the level that I felt like a lot of people were were saying they connected with it. Um, And so for that, I think that it, it really dropped down my pecking order in a lot of departments. But one apart, department that it didn't fall down the pecking order f- for was its score. Um, I absolutely love this, this score. And I'm actually just forgetting right now uh, the it composer. Me, oh, but you will oh, Yes, Emil Moser. Right. He's nominated I mean, for the
0: Academy Award.
1: Yeah. That's what I thought. I knew he got an Emmy, but yeah, it's it's a gorgeous score. It's it's very um, g- like gentle. It's tender, which really feels like a, a nice compliment to the whole movie. Because even though I think there are some some harsh edges to this film about realities of life, etc. um, I think it reminds you that there's like a love within this family and a love within this story that's like very gentle, um, very true. And again, it, it really provides. I think that extra emotional edge that the film uh, that the film provides in a lot of places. And so I really love the score there. And then probably what is who is the favorite for the Oscar uh, a Reznor and Ross joint not the one for Mank, but the one for soul. Uh, Yeah. So, you know animated from Pixar on Disney plus jazz scores. I think, you know, close listeners to the podcast will know that I you know, I'm I have a weakness for jazz related scores and things like that because I just really enjoy that type of music. And I think it fits really, oftentimes it fits really well in movies. And I think soul is, is a perfect example of that. How this very non Resner and Ross like score, uh, uh, really just is beautiful. Captures the spirit of the movie. doesn't really feel like something that you get from these two artists, um, and their filmography, but something that they just capture perfectly. It feels like, right? Like it feels like you are living the jazz scene in New York city, uh, when you're watching this movie and, you know, I, I love many aspects of this film. Um, It's one of my favorite movies of the year uh, from last year, and I would revisit it simply for the soundtrack uh, and the score. It's it's absolutely gorgeous, invigorating. I love this film and I love the score.
0: Yeah, look, I'm I'm behind you on those choices. Um, I loved both Reznor and Ross scores from this year. Yeah. um Stoll and mank. Um, and Emil Mosseri is a real rising star in the world of, uh, of uh, film composition, I think. Um, I hear that his score for Kajillionaire, which also came out last year, was very good as well. Uh, but I haven't caught up with that one yet. Um, given that they are nominated for the Oscars, both of them are. I just sort of looked in a different direction for mine. Um, Shirley uh, and The Nest were two movies that I felt like um, again. Atmospheric is the word that comes to mind. Very dark um, and brooding, strings heavy at times. Um, the Shirley score done by Tamar Kali. Again, that film uh, female females from top to bottom, basically. Um, you know, female cinematographer, screenwriter, director. Um, You know, composer. um, And, you know, I I think uh, that all adds to the film and, uh, you know, adds a lot of layers that wouldn't have been there. Otherwise, Richard Reed Perry did the score for The Nest. Uh, Of course, I have to give him a shout out. He is a member of my favorite band of all time, uh, Arcade Fire. So when I heard that he was going to be doing the score, I knew that it would probably be something special. (laughs) Arcade Fire famously, right? They've they've scored only one movie, that being her. Um, Yeah. Good film. uh, yes that uh that score um i just have to plug for a second was not able to be uh found for many years it, you, you you couldn't find it, you couldn't listen to it really anywhere for years and they've just released it this year um finally for the first time on all platforms so go check that out everything they do um, and check out amazing. the movie uh and then the other one which is which is my honorable mention uh yeah check out the movie as well the nest is good um The other one I want to mention is not a dark brooding score at all. It's quite the opposite, I think. A very sort of adventurous, up-tempo, rousing score from Daniel Pemberton for Enola Holmes. The sort of forgettable Netflix movie. I didn't Um, believe we were talking
1: about this movie. SLIS award-winning Enola Holmes.
0: <laughs> well, uh, no spoilers, but it may or may not come up again later in the show, weirdly enough. But uh, but yeah, no, th- there were exactly sort of two things that I felt were standouts from the movie. One of them was Daniel Pemberton's score. The other one will come up a little bit later on the show. Yeah. Um, but I find myself listening to this uh, score probably more than I should, just because, again, the film associated with it is is not much to write home about. But um, it, I thought it, it was you know high quality. I, I wish that the movie had been on the same quality as the score. Daniel Pemberton usually does great work as well. But Scott, your winner for best original score. All
1: right, I promise I'll, I'll break the mold here in, in a few <laughs> minutes, but I'm not breaking the mold yet because look, it was a technically incredible movie. Tenet uh, is my winner for original score. And honestly, I think Scott, if you if you told me if you like held a gun to my head and said I had to choose one of the you know one one aspect of the thing that we've talked about so far. I think I'd probably choose the score. Ludwig Gorenson is absolutely his score is absolutely incredible. Um as an aside, un, unrelated to this so far, but I remember when um yeah earlier on it like right like a couple weeks or a month or months in leading up to the movie coming out, um its original release date. So I think this was like June or or May or whatever. I remember, I remember there was like some interview that Chris Nolan gave where he talked about like the final piece of the puzzle has been put into place. And he's talking about having Travis, Travis Scott, song. <laughs> song, <laughs> which is so funny to me Um, because I find that hilarious. I mean, I guess I haven't really ever listened to that song. Start to finish. That's
0: like, I, say- that's like saying, and I'm just saying this because I just watched this movie, but that's like saying that LL Cool J's rap over the closing credits of uh, Deep Blue Sea was really the, the, piece that finally brought that film together in the end just a very random
1: yeah. take but. <laughs> it's just so funny um to hear chris nolan say something like that when i mean look he is the kind of director who i think would slave over his movies in meticulous detail and care about something like that um chris that wasn't what brought your movie to you <laughs> the travis scott song wasn't what brought your what <laughs> wasn't what it wasn't the final piece of your movies puzzle um but neither here nor there i think the score from ludwig gorenson from the opening scene, I mean, from the opening scene, the opening piece uh, of music uh, for this film, it just really sets the tone for the entire movie. You know, when that bass drops um, and the bass sort of kicks in and starts thumping in the opening Kiev opera house siege. I just think that, I mean, for me, I'm, I, as soon as that happens, every single time I watch that movie, I'm like totally in on board completely with what the movie is doing. And honestly, from start to finish, you know, whether it's, um, the, the sort of the, the truck sequence in Talon or later on in the movie. I just think that there's these big notes and motifs that Goranson is able to 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 establish and repeat throughout that and, and use in different ways that just work perfectly. I think the the way that that the music is sort of mixed when things are inverted and to show you different perspectives, I think is brilliant. It's it's a way that that you can help that helps orient you and in what direction time is traveling a lot of the time especially in that big climactic scene in the city that you were talking about where people are going forwards and backwards simultaneously and I think that these sort of alternative ways to give clues and help orient your viewers in a story that can be pretty confusing and I would agree that the story is pretty confusing in this one I think I I really appreciate elements like that and I think that when you can do that with your score it's really important I think that like little women one of the underappreciated parts of that movie is like the subtle ways in which it hints towards you, like the color palette, et cetera. um, What time sequence you're in. I think that movies that are able to do that subtly and effectively are really there. It's actually underrated in that sense. And I think that tenants ability to do that with the score is something that I think is underrated or underrates the score. And again, did not get an Oscar nomination for this ridiculous in my opinion um, that he doesn't get nominated for this, but Overall, I've probably waxed lyrical enough about Tenet for now. It'll probably come up again later. But for now, I will say that, uh, yeah, Tenet, amazing, um, uh, a technically amazing movie.
0: Yeah, Ludwig Gordonson is one of the best working right now. Of course, he already has yeah. an Academy Award despite being, you know, pretty young. Black um, Panther,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, Black Panther, The Mandalorian. Uh, He's done Tenet, the Creed yeah.
1: movies. He, or, he, does, like, I, he does everything for Ryan Coogler.
0: So yeah, I, I'm definitely a fan of this score, yeah. um, very much so. I just happen to think, you know that. Again, Nolan scores. You have a high bars, I think, to absolutely to try yeah. to match up to, and maybe this one is just a little bit below, um, like you know what Zimmer does on The Dark Knight or Interstellar or something like that. Um, sure, but all again, all, all
1: movies that should have won Oscars for their scores, astronomically high watermarks.
0: <laughs> we're talking about here, but yeah. uh, Scott, you've talked about Tenet quite a lot. I've talked about Nomadland quite a lot, and I'm talking about it again. That's now. Um, Ludovico Inality the composer here, not really familiar with a lot of his work, but um, I think it's a stunning piano-driven, mostly, score for Nomadland. It, I love the, the subtlety of it, the cadence of the score, I think, just perfectly matches the pace that this film moves at. Um, and it just has, like, these lovely sort of, again, subtle, not overwhelming over-the-top, but, like, builds. It does build. It does crescendo at times. And it just, you know, there's just some spine-tingling, sort of goosebump-inducing moments When nothing is even really going on in the movie, right? Again, it's just like Francis McDormand walking around sometimes. um, And this, you know, when when that piano crescendos, when you see, you know, the vistas um, that Joshua James Richards' um, camera are, uh, you know, settling on. yeah, it's hard not to, you know, be sort of emotionally moved by it, um, which I think is exactly what the movie is going for. And uh, so I think that I now really hit the bullseye with this one. And I look forward to seeing um, his future work, because I think this was a a really special one and also not nominated for the Academy Awards. So there you go, Scott, we have uh, that in common, unfortunately, in this category. But that's why we do these awards, right, to highlight these things, which uh, maybe aren't going to get highlighted by the Academy Awards. Maybe... Your favorite original screenplays are the same way. How about your uh, your honorable mentions here?
1: It's funny that you mentioned that, Scott. I I think a couple a couple of these that I'm about to mention aren't nominated in the original screenplay (laughs) category. So well thought there. Um, yeah. So so yeah, lots of honorable mentions here. You know, I was mentioning a second ago that this is a you know the a score category was one with very little overlap. I think that's also true for the original screenplay category. Some of my honorable mentions, or I guess I'll say this, all of my original screenplays here come from writer directors. Uh, So, so people who are both writing and directing their movies. And I think that this is something that we talked about even last year. I'd have to go double check. I think this was also true in the original screenplay category for us last year. And I just think that it speaks to something that again, and I apologize if I'm repeating myself from last year, but I think that it really just speaks to how important it often is to have these synergies between writers and directors and no, no, you know, you can't have a better synergy probably than when you have a screenwriter who's also a director. Now, you do have to have both qualities about you to be able to do those things, and not all writer directors have both uh, both talents down pat. Um, there will be one omission from our original screenplay list, I suppose, that um, is indicative of someone who maybe doesn't have that that dualness or duality necessarily in this filmmaking, but someone that we still love usually, you know, most of the time. But my honorable mentions all, all uh,
0: of the time, but yes, go ahead. <laughs>
1: Yes, that is a fair point. Um, my honorable mentions will go to Kelly Reichert for First Cow. I think this is a movie where, when I was making this list, like it felt wrong not to include it somewhere, and I felt like for me, you know, it. it I think it had to be in the original screenplay category. It's something that I find it, and I think I talked about it maybe on our top ten of the year uh, episode that we did when I was talking about my experience with the First Cow is that like I didn't find like one particular part of the movie to be something that like really just really grabbed me and I could like latch onto and say you know this is what did it for me this is what made this movie my you know in my top 10 of the year and I think that as I've sort of sat with it more and it's gestated and my thoughts have gestated on it I think that it comes down to just this this sense of world that Kelly Reichardt is able to you know, very I almost I don't want to overuse this throughout the podcast so I'll, maybe I'll say this is the last time I can use this word, but like gently creates like this is a, just a very tender movie in a lot of ways. It's slow moving but not boring. And I think a lot of that is 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 imbued in the screenplay, right? Like the nature of the relationship between the two main characters, the nature of the world, right that these characters are living in, and then the nature of how these two characters interact with that world, right? it's it's I don't want to say it's symbiotic, but it's a relationship, um, it, you know, separate and apart, you know, separate and together that has to really be carefully crafted. And, and I found that um, the best way I could attribute that was just how Kelly Reichert was able to, you know, put that onto a page and then realize it onto a screen. Right. So I, I just found that it was it was a screenplay that really worked for me, not in its, you know, robust, you know, witty, um, incisive dialogue, but sort of in in the in the silence. Right. And in, in the way that it, she crafts the world around it. Um, not unlike how 1917 was able to do something similar last year with a lot of its, you know, less of its um, dialogue and more of its description uh, probably in the, in the way that it's written into its screenplay. But yeah, so, so first cow was one of them. The second one was Eliza Hittman for never really sometimes always. I think there's something that there's something very minimalist, I think about um, the design of the film overall. Um, And I think one, one place that feels a little bit less minimalist is in the screenplay department where, uh, you know, a lot of, the big moments of this movie come in very flat, almost um, dialogue sequences with two people exchanging words, um, you know, one scene in particular that will almost certainly come up, you know, towards the end of the podcast here today. Um, so I won't necessarily dive too deep into it now, but there's just something about um, the story of this, right? Like the story that Eliza Hitman crafts and writes um, onto the page and then onto the screen just again, works really well. Um, it's it's moving in a way and and does that special something where you know it sort of advertises itself as one type of movie or makes at least its audience think it's gonna be about one type of thing. and um it's really about something else entirely. And I think that you know if if there's a couple movies that do that this year, I think this one does it the best. And I think the best the only way you can really do that is with a really effective, meaningful screenplay, um, something which you know, an, another, Contender who I believe was nominated in this category. Uh, I didn't think quite fulfilled in that way. Um, But yeah, I really, really loved the screenplay for Never Really, sometimes, always. And my last honorable mention is a film that, you know, Amazon calls a TV show. I don't really know. I don't really know how to even compare that. I don't know. But Steve McQueen uh, for Mangrove, I think he could have probably picked several of the small acts films uh, to go into this category. But for me, Mangrove is the one that hit the deepest. I think it's it's also the sort of widest – it has the I – I think it has the widest – it has the widest breadth of, you know, uh, intrigue and exploration of multiple different topics, all of which are relevant in the Small acts sort of anthology that he creates of five films. But I think this is the best realized one, and it really, I think, explores maybe some of the most interesting topics as well in terms of, you know, what is an individual's role as a member of a society or culture – um, and w- what is their responsibility to their fellow members of their community, right? And, you know, it, if you're in, in the middle of this community that's doing one thing that you don't disagree with, but you don't necessarily want to be a part of, what's your responsibility to those people? Uh, and I think that's one of the most fascinating parts of Mangrove. And Steve McQueen is incredible, I think, in, in what he's able to accomplish with the whole anthology, but m- most most so with Mangrove. And that, again, comes in, in, in the screenplay department best for me.
0: Yeah. All good choices. A couple that I want to highlight, uh, Scott, uh, the assistant is a movie that I just, uh, think more and more about. It seems like, uh, as weeks go on, um, Kitty green, another writer director, um, you know, writing this film about, um, a female assistant, um, in Hollywood and the sexism, uh, that she has to endure, um, on just a single day in the movie said on a single day of work um and yeah i don't know I, I saw a tweet about this recently that uh hey the academy was nominating promising young woman uh, which i believe is film you were alluding to a you know, um for best picture to distract us from the fact that the assistant uh existed um and i think that's might be spot on honestly because uh, of course i think what the uh you know what the the Academy or what the tweeter was referring to is the fact that, you know, this exposes a lot about Hollywood itself and um, you know, what happens in Hollywood uh, that, that these things that these sort of things are happening right under the Academy members nose in a way in Hollywood. Um, but also I think this movie is just so much better and more perceptive about um, the types of issue, the types of me too issues um, that I think both films are trying to target, but gets lost in the, tr- Trappings that are in Promising Mo- Young Woman, but not in uh, the assistant, which is just you know again very stripped down. We're just going to show this day as it is, and I think the the effect is so much more powerful than in um, something like Promising Young Woman. Yeah, um, the sensibilities so of those two movies there.
1: are like polar opposite.
0: Polar opposite, yeah. Yeah. Um, the other one I want to shout out is Shit House, the Cooper ray film. Um, again, another writer director. Um, this was the audience winner at. Uh, at uh, South by Southwest last year, um, you know, this great sort of link later in uh, film about uh, these college students who meet and share one night that turns into, you know, a few more days, um, you know, <laughs> turns, uh, turns
1: uh, into a few years at the end.
0: Yeah, that is true. It does turn into a <laughs> few years. And, you know, we, we were we were less than thrilled with that ending to the movie yeah. maybe, but that's only, you know, four or five minutes of what otherwise I think is a really sort of sharp and, again, perceptive is the word I'll use, script yeah. that uh, perfectly captures um, what it's like to be at this time of your life um, that, that um, you know, Cooper Rafe and Dylan Galula's characters both find themselves uh, in and definitely a very mature script in most regards uh, for someone of Cooper Rafe's age. So very impressed yeah. with uh, what he did here. Uh, Scott, what's your winner for best original screenplay?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, another, I, I mentioned it was writer director um, sort of combos that really stood out for me this year and uh, none more. So with tenant, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding guys. No, uh, the, my first mention of this film tonight so far, although I doubt it will be the last, it is sound of metal, Darius martyr, uh, wrote this film uh, along with his, uh, I think, I believe, brother, Abraham Martyr. Um They wrote this film together. And Darius Martyr, obviously, being the director of the movie, also, uh, you know, creating a story about this sort of, you know, you know, heavy metal uh, percussion uh, player and, you know, him wrestling with this notion of tinnitus and losing his hearing um, and ultimately becoming deaf and having to wrestle with the reality of that, how he's going to choose to handle that, given his complicated um, history with addiction as well, and how he's going to be able to balance those things as he, you know, really, really, really struggles with this new way of life. And then you know, the, the lengths to which the film goes to show um, and play out those scenarios on screen, um, really special. And I think that the screenplay and exploration of mental health, um, through a different medium or through a different lens, you know it's not the first movie to ever you know have mental health be a critical linchpin of its film, right obviously, but it feels like it's one of the first movies to deal with mental health um in this way, in the manner in which it does, and at the scale of which it does. and I think that um it's it's brave to explore those topics the truth the sad, the sad reality is that it's it's still today brave to explore those topics in that way and have a movie get made about it. And I think the the way that it highlights those topics is really powerful. Um, plain and simple. I mean, some of the some of the most memorable scenes in the movie, you know, I think that are only possible with the screenplay that Darius and Abraham Marta write write. Um, yeah, you know, it just comes down to it that it's not just about the way a scene is framed or, you know, a piece of, you know, music is used or the production design of the movie. Like a lot of it just comes down to, you know, the, the interactions between characters and, you know, the body language or sort of the, you know, nonverbal communication that some of the characters use, but given the nature of the film. So, yeah, uh, incredible screenplay.
0: Yeah, this made my honorable mentions as well. I'm, you know, a huge fan of this movie as well. I think it's brilliantly done. Um, and, yeah, I definitely echo your thoughts there. Uh, my choice, the most fun movie of the year to say, maybe Mike. Um i have been i think very vocal about the fact that not
1: shithouse uh, that's not the, that's this, not the yeah that's to say.
0: <laughs> this was uh that this was my favorite aspect of mank was the screenplay of course david fincher sort of punching up a screenplay written by his late father jack fincher um and i think it just works on so many levels you know it Again, talking about how we talked about how the cinematography and everything really captured, uh, you know, the old Hollywood feel. I think the dialogue absolutely does that. It has that fast-paced, witty feel that you expect to see in like a '40s film. Um, and again, I think just shows um, Fincher's attention to detail and trying to evoke that period as closely as possible. Um, and I also think it's very moving towards the end, right? To think about sort of the meta layers behind this um, and the fact that. You know, this is Jack Fincher's only screenplay that he wrote. This is, you know, sort of David Fincher giving his father the opportunity, his late father, um, the opportunity um, to, to get this sort of posthumous glory, and, you know, in, in a similar vein to what we see uh, Herman Mankiewicz going through in the movie, right? With grappling about does he want, uh, you know, how he fighting for his right, basically, to get his name on the screenplay. Um, and you know, not just Orson Welles. Um, and so, there's something very, again, touching about the fact that you know this film about writers and um, you know the power of uh, you know screenwriting and stuff like that, and being recognized for um, your work. Uh, you know, this is David Fincher letting his father get that recognition for his writing that he probably never got when he was alive. So, uh, I I think that's uh, really lovely job by uh by david and especially by jack fincher uh, so this was uh kind of a no-brainer for me i had to go back here uh, let's go to the other side of the fence now scott adapted screenplay, a little bit maybe thinner in terms of the choices this year but uh we do have one honorable mention each i believe
1: we do yeah mine is one night in miami kemp powers adapting the play that he also wrote himself um I don't remember when that play was written, but he wrote both the play and the adaptation here for Regina King to direct and overall look great. I, you know, I think I was probably the one that was highest on this movie of the two of us. And, and even when we did our top 10 episode as well, the highest of our sort of um, foursome there as well. And I just really found the dialogue and everything that Kent Powers was able to sort of imbue with into the script of this movie really compelling, really engaging. It was a film that I think very easily could have become quite boring to be honest. And it didn't. And I think a lot of that is in part um, with, you know, the manner in which these conversations take place, the conversations themselves, you know, not necessarily being laser focused on one topic for, you know, an hour and 40 minutes or however long the movie is that, that, you know, he is able to mine enough topics in interesting ways and and present different, you know, interesting conversations about these topics um, in a way that I found really compelling. And, you know, not to, you know, dip my toe too far into the acting part of things, but, you know, also had a group of actors who were able to deliver those lines really well as well, but overall a uh, really strong adapted screenplay from Kim powers.
0: Yeah. My choice is Chloe Zhao and no bad land. Once again, um, you know, the, the naturalistic feel of the dialogue here is just so impressive. Like, you know, you wonder, you almost do wonder uh, whether there are not some improv improvised moments in the film, right? Because you I'm have sure these, is real-life nomads um, and a lot of times having these very sort of personal scenes where they're opening up about experiences that um, if you know if not experiences that they themselves have actually had are probably very close to experiences that they have had because again that authenticity uh, again it just feels like uh, Chloe Zhao might have just said all right Talk about this. We're going to film you. Not necessarily that it was even on the page, but of course, I'm sure there was plenty on the page. Um, you arguing against
1: your own your own uh, Oscar nominated
0: screenplay? No, not not at all. Um, there there's some really sort of lovely moments. Again, not a heavy dialogue film. Uh, not not you know driven heavily by dialogue, um, but I think it really makes its scenes uh, count. And there's you know just some sort of one-liners and. Um, little ideas sprinkled throughout the film th- throughout the dialogue that really sit with you um yep. during those quieter segments that you know leave leave you a lot to think about during those quieter sections of the film and so i think chloe jiao deserves a lot of credit for that scott your winner for best adapted screenplay
1: yeah, you know, a film that I think most people could be forgiven for forgetting about. Uh, we certainly covered it and we're excited about it when we talked about it on the podcast way back towards the beginning of quarantine. It was an HBO film, so it didn't get a theatrical release and it's technically not eligible for Oscars for that reason. But it's still a movie, so it still counts on our podcast. And that is Bad Education. So that is written by, <laughs> I. I <laughs> when I was uh, looking at it, before, I was like, oh, is like Mike Wazowski? Like, no, that's the Monsters, Inc. character. Uh, Mike Mikowski. Uh, is the writer of this movie <laughs> yeah i'm not joking at all uh based on i believe uh, a new york a new york a new yorker article um from back so, yeah. when the whole scandal uh was going on back in the early 2000s um directed by cory finley of course as well but yeah mike mckowski you know adapting this sensational story about a uh what is it a a, a, su- a superintendent isn't is he he's a superintendent right yeah yeah, Jack yeah. character yeah, Frank to um, pulling off sort of the sort of largest embezzlement scandal in the history of the U.S. in terms, at least for public schools. And uh, I just found it to be a really interesting way to go about portraying this character and sort of unraveling the story of Frank to because I think it could have gone a, like this film could have gone a lot of ways. I think it's even something that we talked about when we discussed this movie on the podcast. There's like plenty of ways to tell the story and the way that the story ends up being told feels very unique and feels very different uh, from what you might expect, you know, from a more stereotypical type of biopic exploring this type of character. And I think that, you know, all, all, all plaudits go to Mike Makowski and, you know, whatever other input he was receiving during the script writing process for portraying the story this way. Cause I think you get the most out of everything from the story. You get the most out of humanizing this, you know, this person who could have very easily been vilified. I mean, he is vilified in a way, but absolutely. But you know, it could have vilified him even more, could have made him very one dimensional, uh, but instead takes the tact of, of trying to humanize pretty much everyone involved in the story. And I found that to ultimately be a much more satisfying film uh, to, to watch and to sit through and definitely provided a stage for, you know, some really strong actors to take their, you know, to take their parts in, and really dig into them overall. So, again, fantastic screenplay. If you haven't checked out Bad Education, you have access to HBO or HBO Max, definitely check it out.
0: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great film. I'm a big fan of Corey Finley's work. You know, obviously a little bit more of a fan of his first film, um, yep. Thoroughbreds. But I do think this film is excellent as well and shows that he is a rising star. And, yeah, great screenplay as well. Um, my Choice got a movie that uh, hasn't come up yet for me tonight, but was definitely one of my favorites from last year. I'm thinking of ending things. Uh, Charlie Kaufman's um, surreal road trip film. Um that you know definitely divided audiences divided us here on the podcast but um i think there are so many layers to this in in individual scenes there are so many ideas going on within this screenplay that um it really is one of those films where i think you 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 get something different out of it every time and, and different people will get different things out of it just because of um you know what you know sort of theme that speaks to them the most, right? Like, Because again, I think there's so much going on here that I think different parts are gonna connect differently with different people uh, naturally. Um, And I think that's something that's really difficult to do. Um, And yeah, no, I'm just super impressed with a lot of the um, segments of this film um, and the way that he builds all of these metatextual layers, the way that he makes, again, we talked about last year with Greta Gerwig and how it was like the definition of an adaptation, right? How she just did something that was completely her own with uh, this novel that everyone knows really well and is very familiar. You know, I'm thinking of anything's not a novel that is super well known, uh, you know, in the same level as Little Women, of course. But um, you know, a novel that is definitely doing its own thing. And I think Charlie Kaufman made this into a Charlie Kaufman movie, um, and you know, for better or for worse. Um, you know, it follows the same plot, so to speak, of the, of the, you know, novel, but Kaufman's stamp is written all over this in the way that he is able to take what is there on the page and use it to explore some of the, some of the things that he has, you know, been dancing around his entire career, talking about, you know, the creation of art and stuff like that. Um, again, there's just a lot that I think um, shows him as a vulnerable writer, um, as he, you know, has, has come off since he, Uh, was first getting his start. So uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, this film and especially of Charlie Kaufman's uh, writing here. All right, Scott, we are going to move on now to the performances. Uh, Let's start with the best supporting actress, your honorable mentions here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in the Academy Awards, uh, I believe she's nominated in the best lead actress category. I've chosen to nominate her in a different category. So they're just going to have to deal with it. I know all the Academy voters out there listening to this podcast will be really offended by this, but I'm going with Viola Davis for my first honorable mention for supporting actress for her role in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom as Ma Rainey. Uh, yeah, look, I, I, I'm sure you can make an argument that she's a lead in the movie. Fair enough. I think she's supporting, so I put her here. Uh, fantastic performance, really commanding. Is somehow upstaged by Chadwick Boseman uh, in this film, but she certainly makes her mark. And you know, in in a in a world where You know what is it? The sixties, seventies. I can't remember exactly when this when this was set. Um, But in a in a world where you wouldn't expect, you know, a woman, let alone a black woman, to be so commanding and 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 authoritative and be able to hold the attention of all these people around her, especially white men who are just trying to exploit her. um, Viola Davis is perfectly able to capture the persona of this character. I couldn't imagine anyone else playing this role. Period. Full stop. Um, and she does it. She does it beautifully. Uh, my next uh, honorable mention, I actually, you know, I guess I'll stop there because, I mean, one of them I see is is your winner. And then I'll just let you sort of take it away on the other honorable mention there.
0: Sure. I, I also have your winner in my honorable mention. So, of course, I won't mention that. But um, Odessa Young is someone that I uh, was really impressed by her performance. in uh, Shirley. Uh, I think she absolutely goes toe to toe you know, powerhouse actors in uh, Elizabeth Moss and Michael Stuhlbarg and, you know, maybe comes out at better than anyone in this cast. Uh, I think uh, it's, you know, it's really fascinating to watch her go from this sort of um, dressed up housewife uh, to, you know, Shirley Jackson I I- sort of br- bringing out this, uh, you know, darker side of her and, yeah. um, you know, I, th- I think that sort of descent is is impressive to watch from a young actress who hasn't done a lot. I don't remember seeing her in really much else other than Assassination Nation. But
1: is it a uh, descent or is it a very an different
0: film? So, yeah, I mean, there's there's that's a question to be had for sure. Um, and then Scott, the one you were alluding to that both of us had in our honorable mentions, Olivia Cook in Sound of Metal. Um, yeah. You know, we've talked about her on the podcast ever since. You know, the aforementioned thoroughbreds. Um, even in films which, you know, maybe aren't the strongest, I think uh, she manages to be a bright light in those movies. Sound of Metal, of course, is a very, very good movie, so that doesn't, you know, fall in that category, but um, I think maybe this performance gets overlooked a little bit because the other, the two male performances in this movie are so um, incredibly captivating, but I think she does a lot with her little time on screen and uh, creates a very, Believable relationship with Riz Ahmed's Ruben um, that uh, then has to undergo some some change in the third act of the film. That uh, I think is is emotionally moving because of the work that Olivia Cook does in establishing this character in the first um, segment of this film. So I uh, I definitely am a big fan of her in general and of her work in Sound of Metal. Um, Scott, you're a winner here.
1: Yeah, well, look, I was really close to putting Olivia Cook. As my winner, but I just felt like I was going to be giving <laughs> Sound of Metal too many awards, so I had to spread it around a little more. I wonder if Academy voters think the same thing. Um, probably not good if they do. But overall, my winner here is Talia Ryder, who is the supporting actress in uh, Never Rarely Sometimes Always. She plays the friend of Sydney Flanagan's character, uh, accompanying her to New York City to sort of um, terminate the pregnancy that she that she has. And this was a character who at first, like, I was very curious what they were going to do with it. I think when starting out in the film, it's very clear from very early that these two women have a very close bond to each other in a way that feels very singular to women um, going through these, you know, particularly traumatic experiences. Um, Maybe even the right word for them would be like almost micro traumatic experiences in terms of you know, similarities, something like a microaggression, right? Like something that most people don't think about, but are nonetheless still traumatic experiences, you know, for women to experience and particularly formative for women of the age of these characters, you know, in, you know, middle to late high school time period uh, that you're witnessing you know, in this film. And I just think that Talia Ryder's performance here as this friend who is supportive, you know, to a T of what Sidney Flanagan's character is doing in this film, but is still a human being, you know, to herself and has her own experiences and has her own arc and has her own story. I just think is really well realized by her performance. And, you know, I, I've alluded to one emotional moment, uh, sort of already from never really sometimes always Tally Ryder is not in that moment that I was alluding to before. I still won't talk too much about that because I'm sure that it will come up later. Um, but another scene that I found really emotionally powerful is a scene and uh, towards the end of the film at a subway stop, Where, you know, essentially Talia Ryder's character is, you know, being forced into, you know, doing something that she's really uncomfortable doing, but she's making the sacrifice for the good of her and, you know, and and her friend at this moment and the performance that she gives along with Sidney Flanagan in that particular scene, again, really emotionally powerful moment. And I just think the, the way that Talia Ryder portrays this, you know, this complete like it really does feel like a complete person like right? this person who is supportive of their friend but is still a human being themselves Right, like still has their own emotions and their own experiences really powerful performance
0: yeah no I agree it definitely um, you know made my honorable mentions like I said as well um, was very impressed with both performances in this film Um mm-hmm. I, uh, however, went with the direction that uh, maybe the Oscars will go as well. She is nominated um, mm-hmm. and I think uh, has a good shot to win. Uh, and that is, of course, Maria Bakalova in Borat's subsequent movie film, um, was just an absolute force in this film. Uh, I don't think people, I don't think anyone expected, right, to go into to Borat 2 and come out of it thinking that this you know, young female actress was maybe the standout element of the movie. Um, but, uh, you know, they really make it sort of her story in a way. Uh, and, of course, Borat is still very much a factor. But um, I think she really is a game changer in, in taking this movie to a level that uh, I think is is a good deal higher than uh, I've said that before. And I stand by it. I think this movie is, is a good deal better. Than that. And I think her inclusion is almost exclusively why. Um, because it just, it, you know, it forces the the theme's going on to go in a different direction, uh, you know, to be actually pretty focused here, unlike in the first movie. Um, but yeah, you know, she, she just captures, uh, she, she matches Sasha Baron Cohen's fearlessness and energy, I think, with the way that she just sort of attacks these uh, scenes with no fear or um, apprehension about these, you know, creating these awkward social situations. Um, and yeah wow it's it, what can you say she has great comic timing as well there's some sort of improvised moments that um her character has that are again very impressive for someone who is um young like her to sort of be going toe to toe again with with the uh, experienced veteran comedian and uh sasha baron cohen on screen um you know if there is ever a comedic performance uh to get oscar recognition I think this is certainly a deserving candidate and I'm glad that even if she doesn't win in the end that the academy has at least recognized that by nominating her.
1: Yeah, look that that last line you're saying there is the reason why I think she might miss out but hey I I can't fa- fault you at all for choosing this it was one of my honorable mentions. It's a great performance and to to say the least like not expecting an unknown actress to sort of steal the show almost from Sasha Baron Cohen. Maybe she does, maybe she doesn't. I think that's up for debate. They both give great performances, but she certainly holds her own.
0: Yeah. Um, Okay, let's move on to the other side, Scott. Supporting actor. Uh, Who do you have in your honorable mentions here?
1: Yeah, I think I'll go ahead and and throw out our overlap here. Um, And that is Malachi Kirby is my first honorable mention for his role in Mangrove. There's lots of... uh, In Mangrove, maybe even more so the of the other ones really does feel like an ensemble piece. Uh, probably the lead in this is Sean Parks, who plays Frank Critchlow, who is the owner of the Mangrove, uh, the titular restaurant uh, of the film. But, you know, there's plenty of supporting uh, performances as well. Letitia Wright um, and a bunch of others. But most notably for me is the role of Malachi Kirby, who plays Darkest Howe, who is this sort of, I don't know. Like he's a, I guess he's like a political revolutionary in a, in a sense, right? But he's this kind of the voice of this movement in this, you know, neighborhood of of Great Britain, uh, of London, I believe. Um, and he is this individual who, you know, you'd think in a movie like this, who'd be pretty, um, you you know, heroic in a way, right? Like you'd expect him to be this figure who you'd point to and be like, this is sort of like a. Uh, almost like a model human, almost right. Like this person's like fighting for justice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I like that the this character isn't as perfect as you know you might expect him to be overall. But at his heart, he's a human. He's someone who's fighting for you know the rights for him and his people to exist uh, against a system that is inherently corrupt uh, at its foundation, and you know in terms of execution even more so. And overall, I think the emotion that you get from this performance before, even before, you know, the, the arrests happen, I found to be really striking. And then I think it really takes over um, and becomes, you know, its own unique beast of a performance. Once you get into sort of the courtroom drama of it all. And I believe he represents himself um, as well at the trial. um, If I'm not mistaken. And again, sort of like the conclusion of, of the thing also, I think is this really powerful, Um, emotional moment that you get from uh, not just this character but all the characters, but I I found, again, sort of the arc that you see him and, you know, other members of this cast uh, take uh, really powerful and a really strong performance overall. Anything you want to add before I move on?
0: No, I I agree. I think his one confirmation or confrontation uh, scene with Sean Parks is uh, Critchlow is, you know, one of the most electric moments in the movie.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Another reason why um, I could not give the nod to Mangrove in the original screenplay category as well in terms of honorable mentions. Just the, those scenes are really well written, really well executed. Um, yeah. Uh, other performances. I'm I guess I'm mentioning the other the other side of the supporting coin of Shirley that you kind of started when you were talking about Odessa Young. And that's Michael Stuhlbarg. Uh, his performance. I guess I'll, I'll back up and say Shirley was a movie that, you know, it was still really high on my list of films uh, in twenty twenty. And it, it is one of those movies, strange enough, I, that I think back and I'm like, why is this movie not higher than it is? And I think there's something about it, it hasn't stuck with me as much as I would have expected it to, or I think it has for you. Even then, it's still so high on my list, right? So that's not that's not a knock against its quality. But uh, one of the performances that does does stick with me, you know, when I think back about that movie, um, even maybe, maybe just a, a, an inch more so than the other two, is this performance by Michael Stuhlbarg, who plays... Uh, Elizabeth Moss is surely, you know, the titular characters, her husband, uh, this this very manipulative, manipulative, excuse me, uh, manipulative uh, figure who has sort of the tenured role at the school uh, at the local college has, you know, sort of the affection and admiration of his colleagues and his students. You know, he is sort of the the man like with a capital M, right, like this alpha male who's in control of the household, maybe not in a stereotypical way, but you know, in a, in, in a, real way and tries to manipulate the work of his wife, who doesn't have the same credentials necessarily as him, but has been a successful writer um, in the past. And he's trying to stake a claim for that um, of, of his own. And I found that as repulsive as this character is, you can't also help, but just be really mesmerized. I think by the performance that Stolbar gives as this very, You know, schizophrenic probably isn't the right word, but this very eclectic mix of things, uh, different emotions that he turns on at different times to be to manipulate the way that he he does the the women around him. Right. You know, first Elizabeth Moss, but then also Odessa Young's character as he tries to manipulate her as well. And I think overall, um, again, mesmerizing performance from him, really strong. And then my last honorable mention will be Leslie Odom Jr. for his role in One Night in Miami. I think for me, I talked about this when we talked about this movie on the podcast, you know, at first, this wasn't the character that really, you know, really stuck out for me. But by the end of the film, uh, the journey that this, you know, Sam Cook character, I say character like he wasn't a real life person. This journey that Sam Cook goes on, um, that Leslie Odom Jr. takes him on in this performance, again, really affecting overall. And I have i feel like I've been rambling long enough already about my honorable mentions. But overall, I just think, you know, really incredible performance um, from Leslie Odom Jr. here. And uh, he did get nominated, right? So he has a chance, although I. Doubt that he will be away.
0: Yeah, uh, I echo your thoughts, like I said, on Malachi Kirby. Um, the other people I want to give a shout out to are Alan Kim, uh, who, you know, the young actor who plays the young boy in Minari. Um, I think just an amazing um, level of emotional maturity shown um, for an actor of his age. If you've seen, you know, some of the clips of Alan Kim himself going around, I think it, it seems to be um, present in him as a, young boy as well, the same sort of level of maturity, um, that he shows in this movie. And I think, um, it just adds so much since we are in a lot of ways, seeing, um, this uh, story through the eyes of, you know, the boy who was the young boy, who was probably, you know, Lee Isaac Chung in real life. So, um, I think it takes a special actor, um, to capture that. And, um, you know i i think this is this is obviously not just your typical child performance i think this he's doing something you know on par with with anyone else in the movie yeah, easily uh, and then david strathern in uh, no madland a performance that has gone largely unsung in a uh, award season um, you know maybe because i think this is francis mcdormand's movie in a lot of ways um, but i think uh, you know of the supporting players he's the one recognizable face and yeah, he just adds a sort of very humble presence to the screen, um, when he is, you know, interacting with, uh, Francis McDormand's Fern, and just the, the relationship that they form, um, I think is, is, uh, you know, really moving, and, uh, you know, I like the direction that it, it goes in, um, and, you know, that he, 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 he grounds his performance very much, I think, um, You know, and he's on par with the actual real life people, you know, that um, are playing a lot of the nomads that we see in the movie. I think, you know, if you didn't know it was David Strathern, you could easily think that um, he was one of those people as well um, because of the quote unquote authenticity that he brings um, to uh, to his performance here as Dave. Um, Okay, Scott, who uh, who's your pick for the win? And actually, we uh, we both have the same person for the win. Uh, Why don't you do the honors?
1: Oh, that's kind of you. I, I did it last time, but uh, I will take it because I love this. I love this film. Um, if there is such a thing, I guess I'm I'm the one who likes this film the most of the two of us, probably uh, at least relatively speaking in terms of our rank orders. Ultimately, at the end of the year, but it's Paul Racy. He's uh, Rocky. I don't know. I'm just gonna forever just gonna say both versions of the pronunciation just because okay. I've now heard enough people say one version where I'm like I don't actually know what it is, but maybe someone will finally actually tell me how to pronounce it correctly. But yeah, Paul Racy. In the sound of metal, I guess it's just sound of metal. There's no i I'll correct myself there. Um, in sound of metal, he plays sort of the leader. I don't want to say proprietor. Cause that's probably like not the right way to think about this particular community that he's the leader of, but this leader of a community of, of deaf individuals who have embraced the reality of their lives, who live, um, and cohabitate together in this symbiotic way to support each other. Um, and kind of live this very like radical, almost off the grid type of lifestyle for the most part Um, really try to get in touch with the community of deaf individuals around them and is ultimately sort of like the (laughs) uh, in some like really weird warped way, right? Like if you had to point to an antagonist of the movie, right? Like it is Paul Racy, right? Like he's this person who's pushing and pushing and pushing um, Riz Ahmed's Ruben to just sort of like give up his past life. And just embrace the the cards that have been dealt to him rather than try to fight back for, you know, the life that he once had. Right. And that's something that, you know, is a real struggle, like I was alluding to earlier when I was talking about the screenplay of this film. But, you know, there's a particular scene in this film um, which perfectly captures how amazing Paul Racy's performance is. but. Again, I said I was going to stop using this word, but I'm not going to I'm not going to stop using it. it's going to be the third time I use it. Uh, I just find this performance like really, even though I said it's like the antagonist of the movie, right? I just find this performance to be like really tender, really gentle in a way that's just so loving um, towards the community that he's building and every individual, including Ruben um, that comes through it. But in a way, just also solely committed to the ideas and the lifestyle that he is living. Right, and you know, if, if you're going to be a part of this community, you know, you you have to support the other members of this community by the way that you live, you know, not just through you know your words. Yeah, it has to be through your actions. And he views ultimately Reuben as a destructive force for that community. And you know, the the arc over which sort of this relationship with Reuben travels um is sort of the lightning rod for this entire performance. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful performance. I'm so thrilled and surprised that i got nominated for an oscar and i don't again i don't think he has a chance of winning it but it's an incredible performance and i'm very happy it was nominated
0: yeah now you say he's the antagonist but i think you know the the reason you're hesitant to say that is because there's so many layers to this character right in a different movie i think this could have easily been like the motivational you know Coach character or whatever who is like seems yeah. rough around the edges at first, but then you realize, oh, he was doing it all because he cared, you know, in the end, whatever. No, that's not the direction uh, he goes in. It's a much more believable direction. Uh, as you said, there's a real sort of push and pull going on between him and Ruben. Um, yeah. And look, I think, it, you know, I don't know if Paul Racy will go on to have any sort of. Acting career uh, beyond this, just because I think this performance is just like a perfect storm, right? Because he is a musician. He has dealt a lot with uh, hearing impaired people in real life. Um, that you know, though not hearing impaired himself, um, yeah. you know, I, I just think it feels like in, in a lot of ways his whole life was preparing him for this role. Um, and yeah. you know, to his credit, he absolutely took advantage of that um, when that role came around. And I'm glad that the Academy recognized that.
1: Yeah. I mean, incredible to watch this movie. And then two months later, watch something like Coda at at Sundance is crazy. that two Movies came out in proximity to each other.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I'm a fan. Um, All right. Best actress, Scott, uh, who do you have in your uh, honorable mentions here?
1: Yeah, look, I think uh, I I, I think this is one of the categories that I know you'll disagree with me uh, pretty aggressively. But I think this is actually one of the categories that for the most part, like the Oscar nominations got right you know, love or hate these movies to whatever extent you might. Um, I think the performances are all really strong. And so, um, you know, Carrie Mulligan is in my list of honorable mentions. I think that like, we could have a very long podcast about Promising Young Woman, but the performance from Carrie Mulligan is really strong um, o- overall, right? Like, agree or disagree with the vision and the message overall, uh, what she's able to do with this, char- with this character of Cassie, I think is really powerful. I do think that the story is flawed. I think there's some really interesting conversations that it that the story forces you to have that it doesn't intend for you to have. Like it intends you to be talking about something different when in reality, I think you end up talking about something else. Um, something different that sort of is like in, in, uh, almost in opposition to parts of what the movie is saying. But uh, the performance is super committed, super flashy, and Carrie Mulligan has the skill to pull that type of performance off, and she does. She does for me. She's really compelling as Cassie, again, even if flawed overall uh, Vanessa Kirby, another person who was nominated for the Oscar who is probably the best part of the movie that she's in. Um, she plays a character who is struggling with her marriage and with the pregnancy ultimately um, gives birth and then her child has sudden infant death syndrome or experiences sudden infant death syndrome and passes away um, and the absolute emotional roller coaster of you know even before the child is born taking you through some really powerful scenes there all the way to the end of the movie where, you know, she's having to deal with this grief and this trauma in her own way. Very isolated from the, her, you know, what would have, what she probably would have labeled as her support network before. Um, and I'm really unable to grieve in the way that she wants to grieve um, and be supported by the people around her. And I found that to be a really compelling, um, a really compelling uh, portrayal of someone fighting to grieve the way in which they think is best for them to grieve. Um, and not having a support structure that will, um, just let them grieve in the way they want to. And I found that to be really powerful in that and spark or, or what made me think about something that I don't think it's thought enough about, right? Like, obviously we always talk about, all oh, I can support, you know, support people around you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what does that mean? A lot of times because a lot of that times that means, you know, having to push something aside and let someone grieve the way they want to grieve and support them in grieving that way, not just supporting them in general. Um, so yeah, it was a really strong performance, really interesting performance. Overall. And then finally, Sydney Flanagan, not an Oscar nominated performance here, um, but again, was someone who was in the conversation for a nomination for at least a large portion of the season. And I think for similar reasons that I talked about with Talia Ryder earlier, getting my supporting actress uh, award, I think that Sydney Flanagan is in the conversation for a lead actress award here. I think that she and Talia Ryder are doing similar things and in many ways, I think you could argue that she's an even stronger performance. In fact, I might even argue that, um, she, you know, the, obviously Scott, I think what we can really agree on is that the huge thing that set her back is that she, she actually sang in this movie. If she just lip synced, <laughs> she would have been she not. Um, yeah. So she has some pretty incredible scenes where, uh, in a bar where she's singing a song. Um, she has that scene that I'm still alluding to that. I will talk about later. And, um, she does have that scene with Talia Ryder as well. Just a, a a really, a, a, it feels like you're almost bouncing from, you know, a scene to scene to scene, none of which are like big set pieces. Although one ends up emotionally feeling that way. Absolutely. Um, and she's just sort of that steady, almost, um, stoic. well, definitely stoic, almost flat delivery. that still, still like gets you. It still got me at least. Um, and it's really remarkable plucked out of obscurity for this movie by Eliza Hitman. And who knows if she'll go on to do any other, Uh, acting performances but really spectacular work from her
0: yeah uh you know uh promising young woman i think i think carrie mulligan's work is is probably fine i'm just so soured by a lot of what where her character goes in the movie that it's hard for me to separate uh that out but i do i mean yeah i do i do like the other uh two performances you mentioned there Um, I want to mention Julia Garner and The Assistant, sort of, you know, it seems like where you mentioned never, rarely, sometimes, always, I mentioned The Assistant. I think those were the two, you know, those movies affected us each in different ways. Um, And the good news is you can
1: have both of them in the year that was, 2020. You can.
0: Um, But, yeah, Julia Garner, again, a a quiet performance. Most, uh, she doesn't have a lot of dialogue. There's not a a lot of dialogue in the movie. But um, the simmering tension that builds within her character, like, you can really— uh, perceive that at every turn because of uh you know what she's able to do not verbally here um with with her her role and then carrie coon you know i'm a big fan of her um uh, from her work on the primarily on the leftovers um and in the nest i think she uh she was definitely the standout of this movie for me um in addition to like the score which i mentioned earlier but um even, even, I mean, there's th- really just for this one scene alone, she deserves uh, attention. There's a scene at, at the dinner table where she just decides she's going to run up the bill on Jude Law's character as they're sort of going through this pretty painful separation. And, you know, the bitterness that she brings, I think, in, in that scene is, is really effective and darkly humorous as, as well. And I just think she's a unique and powerful presence on screen. And I hope that um, even though not a lot of people saw The Nest, um, I hope that, uh, you know, this will lead to her getting more roles in, you know, maybe in some more in indie type films. But uh, yeah, I think she's a, a great, great actress. Um, Scott, your winner here, who is also one of my honorable mentions.
1: Yeah, look, it's weird for me to be bringing it up and not you. Frances McDormand uh, for Nomad Land. I don't know what more I can say about this performance that I feel like you already have just in in mere illusions, not even like explicitly talking about her performance. You said, you know, just a moment ago when you were talking about David Strathairn's character, that is really in a lot of way, Francis McDormand's movie. And I totally agree. I probably have to say it's also Chloe Zhao's movie just because she's nominated for so many things um, in in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, I was, I don't think we talked about this on the podcast, but I know that I I texted you about this. Is that like, you know, this movie was made because of Francis McDormand. Like she came to Chloe Zhao after she saw the writer and sort of pitched this film to her, asked her to, you know, put the, put the story together, write the screenplay, direct the movie. Um, but yeah, like she like Frances McDormand is, you know, if you had to say it was someone's passion project, you wouldn't actually point to Chloe Zhao. You'd point to Frances McDormand. It was her that wanted this movie made. It was her that got this movie made. And uh, I think you can see how committed she is to telling the story and realizing and sort of like giving a platform to this type of community or to this community to sort of speak some, you know, their truth into the world. Right. Like, I think she's super committed to that. And I think you can you can feel that from start to finish um, in sort of it's almost verite like uh, portrayal of some of these moments, but uh really strong performance. I'm going to try to be more brief, but I think I could spend a lot of time talking about how um, raw, authentic. Can I say it? Um, uh, it, just, it? It feels. Yeah. I'm still allowed to say it. i
0: give you permission now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sam hasn't pounded down my door yet. Um, yeah. I hate
0: that he's ruined that for us, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, it, it's a great performance. If she wins her third Oscar, great.
0: Yeah, that's all there there is to say. I think that speaks to how um, great an actress she is that we don't yeah. even mind. We don't even really have strong feelings or anything about if she were to win her third Academy Award. It's like, yeah, you know what? She probably deserves it. But um, I'm going with uh, someone who I also picked last year for this award. got yeah. won't stop. Her. <laughs> I will keep picking her until she gets the recognition she deserves. Jessie Buckley is absolutely one of the best working right now, um, as she proved once again this year. And I'm thinking of ending things. I really love performances like this, which um, sort of unravel over the course of a movie. Uh, you know, you start to see, uh, as certain Russians come out in the movie, you start to see the character and certain things that, in the performance earlier on, maybe that seemed a little odd or out of place, you realize, oh wait, all of this was very intentional. All of this is very calculated. Um, and, you know, what she's doing here is actually very brilliant and sort of this dual performance. Um, I say dual, but really, I mean, there's even more than two sides to this performance in a way because, you know, again, Lucy, the, nature,
1: Lucille? <laughs> what's her name? the nature
0: of this film is that things are just constantly changing with, uh, which, with yeah. each scene. And I just feel like that's such a hard thing to pull off as a performer. Um, but I think, you know, Jesse Buckley does it, you know, in, in all of the various iterations of this character, whether she's spouting off the, you know, uh, Pauline kale's review of Woman Under the Influence or whether she's, um, you know, at the dinner table with, um, with, why can't I think of what Jesse Clements's character, Jake's uh, family, um, whether she's at the dinner table, you know, talking about her art. Um, Is it know, her the, art,
1: though? <laughs>
0: well, look, but, but you know what I mean. Um, I, know, I know, I know. Or whether she's having these sort of surreal moments where like she slips into the weird awkwardness of like Jake's parents in a way. Um, yeah. Again, the the character is constantly changing. The performance is constantly changing. Um, and, you know, I, it's always fascinating to watch. And I, I love these types of performances. Again, Naomi Watts in Mulholland Drive is the one I always go back to here uh, as one of my all-time favorite performances. Um, that I think maybe is sort of the benchmark in this type of performance that I'm talking about, but I think Jesse Buckley comes really close and uh, you know proves that I think she can do just about anything, and I, I really look forward to um, the roles that I think will continue to come for her now, uh, even if you know Wild Rose and I'm thinking of any things aren't you know blockbusters or slam dunks or anything. I think uh, her name is definitely getting talked about. Uh, you know, after both of these movies and hopefully we'll, we'll continue to be attached to bigger and bigger projects. Uh, all right, Scott, best actor, uh, your honorable mentions here.
1: Absolutely. So I think this is, this is where we get into like heavy overlap territory, I think. So I'll take one of our overlap. I'll, I'll let you take the other. Uh, my first though, which we don't overlap on Chadwick Boseman. Like he's, he's going to win the Oscar posthumously. He's going to be what the is he the third person to do it after um, after Heath Ledger and I'm forgetting is there another person who won posthumously? I think so.
0: Yeah, there, uh, Peter Finch, I believe for network was posthumous. There might even be one or two others.
1: But okay, well, you know, joining the short list of people who have won posthumously, and I think when when of course when he when he died, we talked, I think at a fair length on the podcast about. You know whether or whether or not the performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom was good, it was going to be emotional to see him on screen one final time. Is going to be powerful, um, and it was going to sort of conjure a lot of feeling, and even more so that it might be his best performance ever uh, as well. And you know, if he does inevitably take home the Oscar, I think he's going to have deserved it. He's not; he wouldn't be my vote, as I guess I'm saying right now by the fact that he's an honorable mention and not the winner, but certainly worthy of, of getting the statue and, uh, what else is there to say about this performance? Um, you know, I talked about Viola Davis commanding the room earlier. Well, Levy, the character that Chadwick Boseman plays, he's someone that sort of re, you know, refuses and denies, um, sort of bending the knee to anyone, including Ma Rainey. And I think that uh, the particular energy that Chadwick Boseman brings to this role, you know, while he's you know, less than a year away from his death, um, to colon cancer is just remarkable, really remarkable. The the life that he brings to everything that he does and particularly this movie and a uh, remarkable performance.
0: I don't argue with on with you on that. It didn't necessarily make my honorable mentions, but that's because I think it's just such so inevitable, right? Like it is yeah. just uh, it's almost in its own category in a way just because of yeah. the circumstances that you mentioned surrounding this performance. But um, yeah, Absolutely. do you want to mention one of our overlaps there, Scott?
1: Yeah, I'll I'll do it. I'll do the one um, for the film that I've already talked about already. That's uh, the lead role for, in Bad Education. That's Hugh Jackman's character playing Frank DeSone. Again, I talked about how sort of like the setup of this movie and the narrative of this movie is is very unique in that it really portrays this character as a human, even if he is ultimately this person who did some really bad things um, and a really and it is really twisted um, sort of the logic for him doing those things, right? And but nevertheless it creates a character out of it, right? Like this, this whole narrative structure creates a character of Frank DeSony That's a lot more interesting than just he embezzled millions of dollars from this public school district. Um, it really created a character out of him and, and really allowed Hugh Jackman to show that he's a lot more than just Wolverine. That's something that we already knew, of course, because he's had plenty of performances where he's that we've talked about on the podcast, um, even if it wasn't the countdown series where he's very strong, right? And once again, showing that in this, in this role in particular, I found him to, Really embody what I felt like Frank like was supposed to be like this really like charismatic, um, almost momentous figure who was able to sort of pluck you know the Roslyn School District from mediocrity and make them one of the top you know counties in the country for public school districts in the country, and you know even with all of that positive progress, you know there are flaws as well, and the way he he depicted those flaws in his performance uh to complement the outstanding nature of a lot of what he was doing i just found you know really powerful really moving and in, in a way that you know again when i'm watching like a a biopic like this i don't expect to be emotionally moved right by this villain character almost um and yet you know there i was at the end of the movie and at that time it was the best thing i'd watched in 2020 um and it stayed near the top of my list in my top 10 the whole year yeah, no,
0: I, I love this performance a lot as well. Um, yeah, you know, the the sort of slick exterior sort of um, belying, you know, that he's really starts coming apart at the seams over the course of this movie, I think. Uh, very effective, one of the best of Hugh Jackman's career, for sure. Scott, the other performance we share um, is for Possessor, Christopher Abbott's performance as Colin Tate, right? The man who, for much of the movie, is possessed by, um, by Andrea Risborough's Tazia Voss. Um, However, again, sort of in a way a dual performance, a triple performance uh, in a lot of ways, because not only is he playing Colin Tate, he is also playing Colin Tate, right, as possessed by Tazia, as I mentioned, and he's playing sort of both versions of himself battling with each other. Um, And, you know, I think that may get overlooked because this is a genre movie, right? It's a sci-fi horror, uh, you know, movie. Um, but I think this is, you know, a really, really difficult performance, again, to pull off. Um, and he's someone who is, you know, another up-and-coming name. I think he uh, he was in a, a few movies last year. He's already been in a couple this year as well, I believe. Um, at least one at Sundance. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think we're going to continue to hear his name popping up in things. Uh, because he's made a strong impression in everything that he's popped up in so far. Again, last year with Black Bear and, and uh, this film, of course. Um, and uh, yeah, he was the standout performance-wise, I think, uh, in you know the excellent film possessor, in my opinion. All right, Scott, moving on now to our winner for Best Actor. Again, we went with the same uh, performer. And again, it's from the film Sound of Metal. Uh, Riz Ahmed is that performer. You know, I felt when I came out of the movie immediately that this was uh, you know, my favorite performance by an actor this year. Um, and I have stood by that. Uh, I think, uh, again, he's just so charismatic again. And I, and I think that um, this character could be unlikable at times because of just of his unwillingness to uh, you know, adapt, to change, to uh, come to terms with his situation and try to you know, just uh, deal with it. Uh, rather than, again, trying to make himself, quote-unquote, better, right, which is where a lot of the dramatic tension comes in the movie, Uh, but you're just so fascinated by his fate the entire time, I think, because of um, what he brings to this character, the emotional range that he shows off, Uh, you know, he's very vulnerable at times, uh, you know, gets very emotional, but also very angry in other scenes, you know, one of the enduring images is the the scene with the donut, right, where he smashes it up with his hand, and then he just tries to put it back together again, which is so much about the character in the movie, I think. But um, you know, some of, some of his outbursts, I think, feel feel very real. And and again, I just felt his pain, even though, like, I've never been in his situation. I've never, hopefully, will ne- will never be in his situation. Like, I felt like the agony and the confusion and the frustration that this character is going through um with this situation uh, and i think that's the sign of a brilliant actor when they can make you connecting that you have really no real world perspective on um you know whether it's being a um, heavy metal musician or you know even even uh, more so being part of this community that i really you know uh, am not that familiar with um, so i can't say enough good things about um, his work here uh, he won't win the Oscar but I'm glad to see him in the field um, like we said
1: yeah and for what it's worth it seems like he's the number two in the race yeah backed up by zero data but it it seems like he's number two uh, in the in the race overall yeah he's my winner I I don't know what else there I, I would just be repeating what you said if I said anything more but yeah Riz is top class if you saw Sound of Metal and you thought he was amazing check out his other stuff Go could watch uh, The Night Of on HBO, uh, for example, is a really good place to start for him as well. That was where I sort of uh, first saw him and sort of came captivated by what he could do because um, he, he shows a lot of range in that film too. That character goes on quite the journey over the course of the movie. Or I guess it's a miniseries, whatever.
0: Who even knows what they are nowadays? But uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, anthology. Uh, okay, so. Scott, uh, our final couple uh, of Oscar traditional Oscar categories here. Um, we are moving into with best director. Uh, who are your honorable mentions here?
1: Yeah, look, I, I think this is almost like a recycle of of the original screenplay ones that I, I did a little while back, pretty much only citing writer-director pairings here, because they did a lot for me this year. In fact, I didn't actually intend it this way, but I'm actually going to go look to see if it's actually exactly the same. I think it might be. Um, nope, not exactly the same, but a lot of overlap here. Uh, anyway, uh, first honorable mentions for me, Steve McQueen, you know, not just mangrove for me this year. I, I know it's ultimately it has to tie back to one film. If it was one film, it'd be mangrove. But the entire Small Axe anthology, I think it's just outstanding work. Um, and just kind of felt like it just flew completely under the radar. Weird marketing campaign by Amazon. Frankly, they kind of always do that, I guess. It's kind of a trademark of their service. And it's a reality of the fact that turns out releasing movies and limited series and anthology shows. It's not their main business. Um, so I think they're still figuring out their marketing bit over there, but yeah, sa- you know, Small Acts was a really moving anthology, you know, five-part anthology, and Steve McQueen wrote and directed all of them, and I think that he did a wonderful job on all five. Uh, some certainly resonated more than others, Mangrove being the one that resonated the most, but I think all five are still worth checking out on the on the whole. And the really fantastic part of all of them is that yes, they all they all sort of sit um, on this foundation of exploring race relations in, you know, the West Indies, um, you know, British society and, you know, sort of the second half of the 20th century. But they also have a unique feel. They all have different feels to them. Uh, but overall, really strong work by Steve McQueen. Um, other honorable mentions, Eliza Hitman, never really, sometimes, always. I've said my piece about it at this point. No need to harp on it more. And Darius Martyr for Sound of Metal. Again, feel like I've talked a lot about this movie already. Um, remarkable work from both him and Eliza Hitman in their respective movies, bringing their screenplays to life and their visions for their films and their execution of their films. Just, again, very moving.
0: Yeah, I also uh, to highlighted uh, Darius, Darius Martyr in my honorable mentions. Uh, another person or a, a, another couple to add to the mix got Josephine Decker for Shirley. Um, you know, she got a lot of buzz for her last film. Madeline's Madeline, she has another movie that's going to be coming out this year, as a matter of fact, that may or may not get discussed in our most anticipated of 2021. Um, But this was surely to me was just such a well-made movie. Again, all of the aspects um, of this movie were exceptional in their own right. Um, And I think a lot of the credit has to go to Josephine Decker for weaving all of these, you know, disparate elements together um, behind the camera. I think. You know, really impressive assured confident work to take you know what could have been a traditional biopic in a far more fascinating direction um, and almost a psychological horror film at, at times, which is a very interesting treatment on you know this. Uh, woman who wrote psychological horror stories. Uh, so, uh, very smart filmmaking by Decker uh, and then Brandon Cronenberg, right? Again, genre directors, they don't really get recognized like they should. Um, but another movie that I felt was just really, really well made and constructed, like the way that all of the pieces end up fitting together, the way that, you know, certain images and themes and stuff that are set up in the beginning of the movie, come back around at the end of the movie. Um, you know, again, it, an extremely well-constructed, well-thought-out, um, well-considered movie um, that uh, I think showcases not only style, but substance as well from Cronenberg. I think some people might be dismissing this um, as a little bit of a stylistic exercise, but I think there's a lot more there, um, and I definitely want to credit uh, Cronenberg for that. You know, obviously he, he, has not fallen far from the tree of his father, but I also think he's doing his own thing in a way that you would, you would hope to see um, from, you know, the son of David Cronenberg. Um, who's your winner here, Scott?
1: Yeah, I think. Uh, would you like
0: me to speak about it? Cause again, we share the winner.
1: Yeah, uh, go, go for it. I took the first two, so you can take the next two that we share.
0: Yeah. It's Chloe Zhao for Nomad Lane, right? The person who is probably going to win the Academy Award as well. Um, once again, female directors. Uh, they're good, folks. They're good. Um, and uh, yeah, Chloe Zhao, I think, um, you know, it, it just such a humanistic, naturalistic take um, on, uh, you know, this story. I love the freedom that she gives to her actors and, you know, to the real performers, again, to um, be so open, to be so honest with their uh, emotions. I love, you know, just the way that she, frames the story and uh, the way that the passage, you know, she frames the passage of time as sort of this uh, fluid concepts that probably really mirrors, again, what life on the road like this is like. Um, So yeah, I I can't say enough about how good and how assured her direction is here for someone. This is only her third feature. Um, I'm so interested to see what she's gonna be able to, to bring to the Marvel universe for sure. But I also hope that, you know, down the road, Pun intended. That she uh, she will continue making movies like Land as well because I think um, you know she has a great eye for them. Anything to add, Scott?
1: No, I think you you really said it all. It's a really moving film. I think that as much as I said it's Francis McDormand's movie, I stand by that. But I don't think the movie could be what it is right without further impetus from Chloe Zhao bringing it onto the screen and everything she was able to contribute to a project that Frances McDormand was passionate about and wanted to get made, you know, she couldn't do it alone. And Chloe Zhao was that sort of, you know, second large piece of a two piece puzzle. <laughs> for no man land.
0: All right, Scott, we have arrived at the final award in our traditional Oscar categories. And of course it is best picture. Um, you know, no prizes probably for guessing what we're ultimately going to go with here, but uh, <laughs> other films you want to shout out in the honorable mention uh, category for a brief moment, Scott.
1: Yeah, every single time I'm like planning this, the like our award show, I always wonder like, why do we even have a best picture category? Like we do have yeah. the top 10 movies of the year episode. I guess it's for justice for people's top ten like your top 10. specifically your top 10 list, when oftentimes we haven't seen all the movies um that we I need mean, to see. Last year it was justice mm-hmm. for my top 10 list. This year it was justice for yours. Um True. so for me, it's like basically just a countdown, right, of my top movies. So, you know, tenant um makes the honorable mentions list. Absolutely. I think not in that it, it, it was one of those like tenant is one of those examples of, I feel like just like perfectly encapsulates like the kind of movie that just fit perfectly in the year that was 2020 for me. Um, it, Like it checked a lot of boxes fit into the, fit into the puzzle of the pandemic for me and providing a much needed, you know, source of relief getting to see it as many times as I did and a sort of escape from reality for the number of times that I was able to with it. Um, And then other, other ones soul lovely movie. Haven't gotten to talk about it too much so far uh, just because it is, kind of in the animated category and it's kind of hard to shoe in just voice performances a lot of the time but I absolutely think that you know what Pete Doctor and Kent Powers were able to do with this movie um, the voice roles by Jimmy Fox the um, score by Reznor and Ross that I talked about already remarkable movie really charming um, and as always with Pete Doctor Pixar movies I found them to be really affecting uh, overall for me uh, true of almost all of his uh, uber uh, with Pixar uh, Nomadland for reasons that we've talked about like 20 times already I think um, remarkable movie and uh, it won't be hard to guess what my number one is uh, and the award winner yeah
0: no just to briefly hit mine as well uh, Sound of Metal a film I absolutely love um, for reasons that I've stated I'm thinking of ending things again uh, a fascinating film that um, you know grows more for me the more that I think about it Um, from Charlie Kaufman and Possessor, right? Uh, This was my number one when we made the list. Of course, one film has since um, taken the crown, which is what Scott was alluding to. But uh, Possessor, you know, as confident as, uh, you know, well-constructed a genre film as we have seen in in many years. Um, And yes, still sits with me and Um, some of the images in this film will will continue to sit with me. And I know this is going to be one that I uh, will definitely burn through some rewatches on uh, this year and beyond. So um, love Possessor, even if it was ultimately, you know, had to hand over the crown in sort of the the final stretch of the year. But uh, all right, Scott, your pick for Best Picture.
1: Sound of Metal. It won a bunch of awards uh, already for me. You know, I, I gave it original screenplay, supporting actor lead actor got an honorable mention and other categories as well, including um, supporting actress with Olivia cook shouldn't come as a surprise uh, to anyone. Can't, you know, director, etc. Uh, also as well, coming up, it really was sort of the full package for me in terms of, you know, a, a movie that delivers um, on, I think all of the boxes that you need it to deliver on to be an emotional experience, a, a holistic experience. And, you know, even beyond that, right it shines a light on a community that hardly ever is engaged with in a meaningful way um, in film to date. And, you know, I was alluding to earlier that it was remarkable to see this film. And then two months later at Sundance see a film like Coda, which also engages um, with an element of that community. And it's really good to see, you know, the light being shown on, on these people. And, you know, even more interesting, I found, you know, the, Immersiveness right of both films, but we're talking about Sound of Metal here of literally taking, you know, going to a school for deaf children, you know, putting Ruben Riz Ahmed's character into that classroom to learn and to teach at the same time, sort of simultaneously. Um, I just found it to be one incredibly engaging and moving emotionally in the in the moment in the film, but also two, like really emotionally gratifying as well to think about you know, what that means for representation as well. And, and sort of like the commitment to the role, uh, these that both, you know, Riz Ahmed has, but also, you know, the filmmaking team for this, for this movie has really special film. Um, I'm really excited to see how this sort of ages, um, over the next few years for me. And if it, if it's still, if it continues to be this powerful and, you know, in nine years time where it shakes out on a top 10 list for the decade.
0: Yeah, talk, Scott, talking about movies that depict, uh, you know, underrepresented communities uh, on screen, my pick is Nomadland, uh, which does the same uh, for, you know, again, these sort of modern day nomads. Um, this is such a, a movie right up my alley. I knew it would be when I first heard about it, when I first saw the trailer. Um, and it's, yeah, it was just such a gratifying experience to see it deliver on all of those expectations uh, and hopes that I had for it. And then some, it's a beautiful film about America. Um, and, you know, it, it it has both its hardships and its joys. Uh, it just depicts, you know, life as it is for these people. And, you know, those sort of movies are oftentimes, um, you know, some of my all-time favorites. And I would not be surprised if Nomadland um, grows to be an all-time favorite uh, in the very near future, um, If if we're being honest, it, it definitely has that kind of potential. I already want to, you know, watch it for a third time after, after seeing it, you know, a couple of times in quick succession. So uh, I think well, that's not that 10 times to its power. Well, who knows? Maybe I'll get there over the course of the next year, but yeah, no, maybe, yeah. Pro- probably not. But um, yeah. look that, you know, Little Women was a once in a million cosmic explosion. Um, but this is, you know, again, yeah, as you would hope with, you know, the best movie from a given year, you would hope that eventually um, it's going to, Find its way into your all-time favorites, and you know, like with Little Women, I think you know that could come sooner rather than later for for a film like Nomadland. Absolutely. All right, Scott. That concludes our traditional Oscar categories. We're going to move on now to uh, some of our uh, you know awards that we have created. Um, Some of them, you know, a lot of these. Yeah, a lot of these we do each year um we did have sort of a, a newer award that we invented for this year which we'll start off with because it was such a weird year right in in so many ways in 2020 with covid um and you know a lot of times it was a it was a little bit of a dark and depressing year right covid um starved of starved us of a lot of opportunities for you know social interaction gathering you know big events um just so much that, um you know we we look forward to maybe in life um and you know going to the movies of course is part of that as well um and so we wanted to take a moment to highlight some of the movies that you know can, can continued to come out in covid and which sort of brightened what was a, a bit of a dark period um in in a lot of our lives um, so we're calling this award the quarantine soul food award because they just brightened our quarantine for you know a couple hours like we said um, what are your honorable mentions here, Scott?
1: Yeah, this this replaced last year's Cat Awards, which you know, they just really didn't feel yeah. like there's anything comparable uh, to that this year, so we did something better, uh, which I think is this, this because I think, you know, that that award last year was a little tongue-in-cheek and definitely making fun of, an, uh, of a movie, whereas this one is celebrating movies still, so it feels a little bit more right uh, for an award show. For me, I don't think it's going to come as a surprise based on how I was talking about this film earlier in the show that it would fall into this category, but that's Tenet. I watched it five times. It was a beautiful film uh, to come out at the time that it did. You know, when movie theaters were open again for a short period of time here in Boston, I was able to see it again, just completely, uh, you know, complete escapism, you know, getting to go along for the ride with John David Washington and Robert Pattinson. As they, you know, flew around on boats, they crashed planes into free ports. They, you know, inverted time. Like it was just I mean, it's just, you know, I'm someone who likes to go into a film and like understand it and follow along. And it took me a few watches to feel like I'd crack the puzzle. But then like at that point, I just get to like sit back, relax, you know, in the fourth and fifth times I watched it, which again, absurd to say probably, but like, I just got to like turn my brain off and just like go along for the ride. Right. You know, some people can do that the first time and I envy you because I can't always turn my brain off in that way when I'm watching uh, Chris Nolan movies. Um, but it's just a, a complete joy to watch. Um, it came at the right time for me during quarantine. Uh, Another one that I think definitely falls into this category for me was uh, freaky, which is a movie that Scott, I know you're a huge fan of. um, And I think won't be the last time it comes up uh, in the rest of the show either, but it's a really, really enjoyable film. I I guess maybe not coincidentally, another time I got to go to the movie theater uh, in the past 12 months, got to see this. Um, It's a lot, it's a lot of fun. Maybe not the, you know, your predictable type of movie that might fall into this category, but with this particular side of like comedy, slasher mashup that um oh shoot i'm forgetting the filmmaker's name christopher landon yeah christopher landon yeah um brings the table i think that it it does provide some sort of soul food ultimately for its audience right because it's again it's not all serious it's not all cutting up um you know your protagonist in the typical slasher stereotype way um there's a lot more funny things going on for it you do get the kills they're often very satisfying very funny Um, There are definitely a fair few in in freaky that are that way. And I again, just a a pleasure to watch for the hour and 40, 50 minutes, whatever it was um, on the screen. And the last honorable mention here, I think we get to share this one on our list. That's Palm Springs. You know, for me, it doesn't ultimately get this. uh, It doesn't ultimately win the award. But I think for a lot of people and as a sort of like cultural moment during quarantine, Palm Springs came out for those who were able to watch it. Like this really was like a right place, right time type of movie. It's it's good on its own merits. Like I recently rewatched it um, a couple months, a little over a month ago, a month and a half ago uh, on Valentine's Day, actually. Um, And it's just it's very rewatchable. It's it's breeze. It's like a breezy 90 minutes. Uh, The performances are really charming. And there's just like so much to love about this movie. Um, Is it one of the best movies of the year? No. But at the same time, it is a particularly enjoyable movie. um, And again, takes a spin an even more comedic spin on sort of the time loop genre uh, overall and uh, a joy to watch, you know, in the 90 minutes that I watched it during quarantine.
0: Yeah, no, I think this would be the popular answer. If you just ask, you know, the casual movie watcher here for this award, certainly Palm Springs, I think was that sort of balm for a lot of people. And I certainly agree with you there. Uh, I felt the same about Borat's subsequent movie film, Scott. Um, you know, I, I think that with politics being what they have been for the last, I mean, you know, not just four years, but beyond that, to a certain extent, um, again, yeah, even separated from the the dark, depressing feel of, of COVID period, uh, you know, I think that has hung over the world of American politics for some time now. Uh, and so I think the fact that, uh, you know, Josh Larson had a great phrase when about the first Uh, when he reviewed the first Borat in preparation for this film, he said, you know, the first Borat, when it came out, felt like an expose let's hope that the second Borat feels like an exorcism. Uh, And I I totally agree that that is what it felt like for me, at least Um, that, you know, if somebody like Borat, right. If the most, one of the most prejudiced individuals um, that you you know you could put, you could imagine if he can overcome his prejudices like he does by the end of or a subsequent movie film then you know you feel like anybody can do it um, and that's you know a, a hopeful note in again a political world that does not always uh, present a lot of hope so uh, yeah this movie in addition to just being very funny I think was was very cathartic also in a lot of ways. Um, And, you know, there are also some really nice moments, um, some heartwarming moments that you don't expect to see uh, from a Borat film. But, um, okay, Scott, uh, your winner for this award, which was also uh, one of my honorable mentions.
1: Yeah, on this podcast, it feels like this is a this is like the obvious pick for some, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. but I know that we liked this movie a lot, like at least a lot more than I think it was critically received. And I don't think that many people actually watched it. Um, it's a focus features film. So it, it was one of those that got released to like paid video on demand, or you could like, you know, have the $20 rental price. I think it might've been $15. I don't remember what the price was. Um, but it got, it was like one of those early forays into that. Obviously not of the popularity of something like a trolls world tour, but it was out there to rent pretty early on. And we did review it on the podcast. And I'm so happy that we did. I remember I texted you when we, when I watched this movie, I think you had already seen it at the time. Um, I think I watched it a little bit after you and I was like, wow, just like, This is just the perfect movie to be watching right now. And that's the high note. It's Dakota Johnson, Kelvin Harrison, Jr. um, Tracy. Forgetting. forgetting Tracy Ellis Ross. Tracy Ellis Ross. That's right. Tracy Ellis Ross as well. And just utterly charming, sun-kissed film uh, about sort of like the music scene, uh, music producing scene in LA um, has some rom-com elements, has some drama elements. But is a great way to just sort of kick back, relax and take your mind off the pandemic um, during the last year. I have not rewatched it, but I, I expect that if I did, I would still enjoy it just as much as I did the first time, because it's not like it's a drama that's spinning this tale that's going to you know surprise you at the end. And the fact that, you know, that, although there is a big twist at the end, um, the, the fact that, you know, that twist at the beginning. You know, going back into it, I don't expect that would affect your experience overall. <laughs> Although I think the twist is a bit of a lull uh, overall. Um, but yeah, a, a charming film. love that we watched it. I'm sure it was you that convinced and convinced us to watch this for the podcast. Um, and yeah, certainly happy that we did.
0: Yeah, I, I need to rewatch this. I actually own this film on Blu-ray, believe it or not. Uh, but that's how much I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I, think we, it talked, I think we
1: talked. about the story. You got it, like the 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 bargain bin, right?
0: Yeah, I did. Um, the, the, you know, this was it was a very comforting film. You know, not only did it come out, you know, during the high of the pandemic, but also, you know, it came out during the weekend when a lot of the the riots and stuff started happening, um, yeah. you know, in, in the wake of, you know, the, the George, George Floyd killings and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, obviously doesn't have anything to do with that. Um, but maybe that's what I liked about it, right? Is that, uh, you know, I got to take my mind off of that for a little bit. You know, I had some disagreements a little bit with my family about some of the stuff that was going on and that was sort of weighing heavily on me at the time. And I just remember sitting down watching this movie and it just like, seemed like all of that just disappeared for, uh, you know, an hour and 40 minutes or so, which is exactly, you know, what you want from this type of movie. But it was only my honorable mention, um for oh, my, my winner. Um, yeah, you know, you know, this was a, for my, my winner as a movie that I, I mentioned when we did our top 10 movies of the year that I was not going to count because it is a concert film. Um, and so I don't really consider it. Uh, you know, I didn't really consider it for that list just cause you know, there's some weird, um, uh, it's a slippery slope a little bit, I guess. Um, but I felt like, Hey, I can do what I want here. And, uh there you know this did bring me the, the most joy of anything in that i've watched in quarantine in, in a lot of ways um and that was the concert film david burns american utopia um directed by spike lee put on uh hbo max this was the you know the filmed version of david Byrne of the talking front man of the talking heads um his broadway show um which is, it's not really like a play or anything like that. Like you, you might expect when you hear a Broadway show, it's, it's a concert. That's, that's what it is. Um, and you know, I have concerts. It's one of my favorite things to do. And obviously something that I've not gotten to do now in, uh, you know, quite a long time because of, of quarantine. And, you know, for, for an hour and 40 minutes again, this, this made me feel like I was, I was back at a concert um, it's a it's a joyous experience. The the music of David Byrne and the Talking Heads is, is very joyous. I love the uh, ensemble on, on stage, not just David Byrne himself, but he has a really very talented crew of backup performers that are all from diverse backgrounds. Um, and you know, talking about the uh, the riots, you know, interestingly enough, there's uh, you know, one of the more powerful moments, scenes moments of the year. Um, is in this film when they cover a Janelle a song called uh, Hail You Tombout, um, where the verses of the song are essentially um, reading out the names of Black people who have been killed by the police and you know the call and response refrain after reading their names of say say their name say say his name or say her name say his name say her name whoever it may be um and just sort of that repeated motif again as the names just keep building and building um, yeah it's it's powerful again to see this this whole ensemble uh, up there acknowledging this you know big problem that continues to plague our country um but far be it for me to suggest that this is a that's the exception rather than the rule most of this is just, you know, the sort of great vibes that you would expect from uh, a rock concert. And so I, I absolutely love uh, this film. I listen to the soundtrack all the time. Um, and it was, yeah, it was definitely one of my um, most comforting thing, comforting experiences that I had during quarantine was was getting to watch this on HBO Max. So it's an easy choice for me.
1: Um, yeah, look, I, I think that you could easily lump Hamilton into that category too. I'm sure for a lot of people, I sure. mean, look, I've seen some data in the industry that I work in now. Uh, a lot of people signed up for Disney plus to watch Hamilton. Um, yeah. So that doesn't surprise that. Me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It makes you wonder if you'll, they'll start doing more of these sort of Broadway things, but um, they do we'll, them. We'll, I mean, we'll I mean they sort
1: of do them already, right? Like they actually, I mean, there's a theater near me that would regularly show like Broadway tapings of like, I remember they did Benedict Cumberbatch, Hamlet, like they would do them all the time. True. just they don't obviously that's not the same as putting it on Disney Plus or HBO Max. Um, and we'll see if maybe, maybe yeah. right maybe it'll be a trend.
0: All right, Scott, our next category is breakthrough performance. Uh, someone who um, really sort of stepped into the spotlight this year where they were not previously um, and impressed us. Uh, who's your honorable mentions here?
1: Yeah, this is a tricky one because I, I, I wanted to try as much as possible to steer away from people that I talked about um, in the like uh, traditional awards, because I think there's people that like, could definitely qualify in that, like Sidney Flanagan, Tally, right? Like all these people, like outstanding performances, absolute no names. So I decided to go some different directions here as well. Cooper Rafe is my first honorable mention. Someone you mentioned earlier when you were talking about his film, Shithouse. He's the writer, director and star of the movie. Um, and I found it to be sort of a, a bit of a coming out party for him, so much so that um I don't know if this if I if I put this name down before or after this news was announced, but the fact that he's making like his next movie is being made with Dakota Johnson, like that that that's that's a huge step up um uh, from like you know, making your own movie uh with virtually zero support and then like throwing it into the South by Southwest um competition and you know showing up spades basically and um getting a distribution deal coming out of that winning winning the audience award last year um, so huge coming up party for him in a lot of ways but I enjoyed his performance a lot too like you know Dylan Glula also has a really strong performance in this movie but Cooper Rafe as sort of a trifecta here really strong and really left an impression on me even if I am very dissatisfied with the ending of that movie um, everything else before that was really um, emotionally aware probably what you'd expect from someone who's you know of, of the generation that he's writing about. Uh, unlike some writers uh, that, that sounds like super targeted and like passive aggressive. I don't mean it that way, but like when you're writing from the perspective of that generation, you live in that generation, like you're probably going to write it better than a lot of people would. Um, that's just, that's just facts. <laughs> um, sure. The other, the other one is sort of, uh, it's one movie dual performances in it. Uh, one night in Miami's Kingsley Ben, and Eli Gorey. Uh, both of these people have done other things. It's not like their first thing ever. Um, but you know, Kingsley Benadir and Eli Gorey, definitely the biggest thing they've done now is one night in Miami. And I think that they are both very, very strong in their dual roles. Um, Malcolm X for Kingsley Benadir and and um, Muhammad Ali um, for Eli Gorey. Just really spectacular uh, performances. I talked about Leslie Adam Jr.'s performance already. Um, yeah, just incredible, incredible work from them. I expect, and I think I've already seen some casting news for both of these guys, but particularly Kingsley Benadier. Um, I think they're both going to take off. They're really strong, young black actors in this space. Uh, there's plenty of them, but there's plenty of stories to tell out there for them to be in as well.
0: Great choices, Scott. I, I can't disagree with those. Um, I will save your winner, uh, who is also one of my honorable mentions, who has also come up in this earlier in this episode as well. I will uh, let you... Uh, give her her due um, in a moment but I do want to mention John McGarro and Orion Lee the two actors from Kelly Reichert's first cow um, who I think you know uh, unsung heroes of this um, film perhaps again because it is you know a quiet deliberately paced film no showiness about these performances whatsoever but I uh, I really felt the bond that these characters form and their friendship I think is is a lot of the driving force um, the emotional driving force uh, of this movie so um yeah uh, shout shout out to both of them uh who were both again sort of no names that i had never seen in anything before uh, but they did great work um who's your winner here scott
1: yeah my winner here i, I tried my best to steer away from breakout performances from people we already talked about as possible but i just think that there's this one performance right that we've already talked about several times i think that it's just like undeniable like this is a breakout like if this is a breakout performance. Like that's This is like the definition of the category. And that's Maria Bakalova um, from Borat, subsequent movie film. Look, like not only has she been nominated for the Oscar, but like it's just an incredible role doing something unique. Oftentimes, unique is probably like overused word, but like very different and very eccentric in the world of, you know, Hollywood filmmaking, et cetera. Like these types of um, the type of movie that Borat is like just doesn't get really made ever um, unless you're Sasha Baron Cohen making these movies, right? at least not in any scale that matters that has an impact on anyone. Um, and I, I just found it remarkable that she was able to establish herself so powerfully in a movie like that. That is just as much as Francis McDormand, right. Is, is Nomadland. Like Shasha Baron Cohen is Borat, right. And Borat too, that, you know, the entire force behind that movie. So it's incredible. She was able to, to leave her mark on the way that she did on that film. And again, we already have casting news for her getting casted in or rumored about loads of things feels like two or three things already on the books for her. Um, And she very well may be an Academy Award winner.
0: Yeah, seems crazy to say, but uh, would be cool. Um, Someone that I hope will become an Academy Award winner in years to come, Scott, is Catherine Newton, uh, who is my choice for this um, award. Certainly, this is not our first time talking about her. We have mentioned her in other films and even TV shows in the past. Um, but this was really, but her role in Freaky, I think, was really her breakout film role. Um, and, uh, that is why I, I chose her for this category, um, because she really is the lead here, and she's the lead alongside a, a much more well-known actor in Vince Vaughn, and I think she, you know, goes toe-to-toe and even betters him, um, in, in this film, uh, with, you know, a, a very fun double-sided performance as this teenage girl, um and you know later obviously a, a vicious serial killer um, after she body swaps with with vince vaughn's character um and yeah this is again maybe this was the theme for performances this year but again multiple sides to this character i think she pulls them off uh really well um, you know her silent menace um is something that you know it, given her physical stature you might not uh, you might think she isn't able to pull off but i actually think uh she does make for a pretty intimidating serial killer believe it or not um but you know again with tongue planted firmly in cheek as uh is you know the the theme in this movie um so i i think she's a real talent i'm glad that she finally got a film role that showcased her talent and she's already gotten another one um with the 2021 film that i uh also enjoyed quite a bit called the map of tiny, perfect things. It's on Amazon prime right now. So um, check her out on that. She's also a lead in that. And I think is really strong. Um, And I think we're going to continue to hear her name uh, again in, in, you know, the years to come, hopefully. And uh, maybe we'll look back at freaky and say, Hey, this was, this was the moment because uh, I think her, her charm is hard to deny. All right, Scott. Uh, just a few more categories here. Uh, and you know, we, we have to give a moment to the movies that we saw that were perhaps not the strongest this year. Uh, we do our worst movie of the year, of course, on our top 10, um, films of the year, but we also like to give out this award for what we call the brightest light in the darkness. Um, a good performance, a standout performance, uh, in what was otherwise a bad or forgettable movie. Uh, we each have an honorable mention here, Scott, who did you choose?
1: I chose Betty Gilpin for The Hunt. Um, I think that there's a lot of bad things about this movie. Still trying to wrap my head around Damon Lindelof writing that script. Um, but overall, <laughs> the film's a, a dumpster fire um, in a lot of ways. But Betty Gilpin gives a committed performance. And as this, I don't know, misunderstood conservative woman. I don't, I don't know how else to describe it. It's a good performance. I can't bring myself to talk much more about The Hunt. But that's my honorable mention.
0: Yeah, I, I did think about this performance, actually, when I was making uh, my choices for this award. But yeah, that movie just really did leave a, a sa- sour taste in my mouth. It was the last movie that I saw before uh, COVID hit, uh, but fortunately not the last that I've seen to date. Um, well, it's, it's but... funny that you
1: say that that's the last movie, because not that this movie is the last movie that I saw, because it couldn't be, that you're about to mention. But this actress was the lead in the last movie that I saw in movie theaters before COVID started. Um, but I'll let you take it away.
0: That is true, and Scott, you know, I had to find a way to get her in here um, because she is my favorite, uh, and that is Anya Taylor Joy. Um, Gonna put her for
1: best actress for the Queen's Gambit. We'll just call it a long movie. We'll just call it the Snyder (laughs) Cut uh, version.
0: I mean, yeah, obviously her year was sort of defined by the Queen's Gambit, and that—that is the definition of a breakthrough performance. You know, we were just talking about it. Sure, um, she's won the Golden Globe. TV had a couple of those. Uh, Yeah, uh, it's true, but. she was also in a couple of movies people people might forget the one that scott was alluding to was emma that of course is not my brightest light in the darkness because i like emma quite a lot uh Good but one. the other movie scott i guess you know the hunt was the the first movie that i saw or was the last movie i saw yeah. before a quarantine hit and then the first movie i saw back in theaters uh when they opened back up was the new mutants uh which also featured anya taylor joy um not a very memorable movie. Um, again, there a lot of bad production history on this movie. Uh, the release was delayed for quite a while, uh, but I do think that the lone bright spot here was uh, Anya Taylor-Joy's quirky performance. Um, I don't even recall really what her character's name was, but as one of the the mutants, she has her. Uh, a little bird that she carries around and talks to named Lockheed. I do remember that part i think um, I think
1: her mutant name is magic, but I'm not sure. yeah, it. her
0: Russian accent might have been a little all over the place, but might have um, been. <laughs> I think the uh, you know the performances were a little all over this place in this movie, and it's just one of those where like you see this person on screen around all these other actors and you just like you uh, you instantly realize like this person is kind of in a different league from what everyone yeah. else is doing here, like she just. Um really was kind of dunking on people for a lot of this movie. Um, Ileana
1: Rasputin is the character's name
0: sure um <laughs> so so that's my honorable mention. Scott, who's your winner?
1: yeah, my winner is uh truly a, a you know a memorable performance or a good performance in a, in a <laughs> forgettable movie. uh Scott, I might actually be reminding you that this movie exists right now. But love yeah. wedding repeat. Uh, Olivia when Munn, I saw
0: who, when I saw who you picked, I, I confess I did have to go look. I was like, What movie was she in again?
1: Oh, that's so funny. Um, yeah, Olivia Munn, uh, is the brightest light in what is otherwise a tepid love <laughs> love, wedding repeat. Um, not even Sam Claflin is good in this film. Not that I mean, not that I'm super high on Sam Claflin in general anyway, but <laughs> which is what I expected him to be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Olivia, I mean, yeah, he was what he was in a drift too, which was. Very forgettable movie, um, and
0: the movie I'm about to talk about. But go on.
1: <laughs> oh, that's true. He was. I forgot he was in that movie. Oh, that's so funny. I love this category. Um, oh, that's so funny. Wow, Sam Claflin is getting roasted in this category right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Olivia Munn. Look, I I almost feel like I'm giving this her this award just because I like her so much, not because her performance was particularly special um, in the in this movie. Um, but yeah, it's it's good. It's charismatic. She's Olivia Munn. Um, I don't know why she doesn't do more things. To be to be frank, uh, I mean, I guess she got shafted pretty hard in like the X Men movies because she was she was um, I'm forgetting her ex her character's name in Apocalypse, but I'm pretty sure she had like a whole arc set um, coming out of Apocalypse that just kind of like with everything else after um apocalypse just sort of did horribly i mean it was not a good movie, not that good of a movie overall especially coming off of days of future past which is considered by many to be sort of the best men uh, x-men movie in the fox franchise um but yeah she got she got shafted pretty hard there and she has done this film i hope that next time she partners with netflix she gets something better um but look she was she was good she was good enough in this to to be the brightest light in um the darkness of this movie.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I like Olivia Munn, but there just really wasn't much light at all in this movie. So uh, even in her performance, um, yeah, I didn't really find anything uh, to take away from this one. Um, But I do want to mention the other Sam Claflin uh, film, which was uh, (laughs) Enola Holmes, right, which has already come up. I mentioned it in my best original score, honorable mentions. Um, And the star of that film is Millie Bobby Brown, who is my choice here. Um, Again, I'm not I was not as familiar with her work, having not watched Stranger Things coming into this. I know that she's very well regarded from her performance on Stranger Things. And I get Godzilla. yeah, I, I get it after seeing uh, this movie. I, she's she's absolutely a star, despite you know still being a teenager. Um, you know, I, I think her sort of fourth wall breaking scenes in this movie could have come off as really annoying, but were actually pretty precocious and charming. Um, and you know, it says a lot that even though I was, you know, this film was a big dud for me uh, for the most part, I would watch a sequel. To this movie because of millie bobby brown honestly um and i think that that says a lot about what she was able to bring to you know the the spirit that she was able to bring to this character of Enola holmes so uh yeah again the brightest light in i mean darkness maybe is a little harsh for Enola holmes but you know it was just kind of there for the most part it, it could have been a lot
1: more it could have been a lot more oh yeah
0: absolutely it definitely had potential um all right, three more categories to go, Scott. Let's uh, go now to our most attention grabbing, grabbing opening. Uh, your honorable mentions.
1: Yeah, I think we have uh, quite a bit of overlap here. So I'll start with my unique one first, and that's the platform, Scott. I don't know if you forgot about this movie. This is like yeah. maybe like the first movie we did. I think even maybe after quarantine started, this might have been like the first we watched this like on Netflix party. I remember. I remember it very clearly yeah. uh, when we. I remember it. watching it. Yeah 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 and I think that there's nothing like very particularly special about what this opening does, but just like this movie is like such a such a like such an out there sort of like high concept horror film um that it's a t- like it's opening when it's sort of first showing you the platform and this sort of vertical prison um with food on the on the central platform that it sends down like it gets your attention like i like my was i was like totally engaged. From the moment the movie started, Um, it's a it's a Spanish language um, horror film on Netflix. Um, If it intrigues you at all, check out the trailer at the very least. It's I won't say it's a home run overall, but uh, in terms of pure genre, it is pure genre. And its opening certainly captured that genre ness and and got my attention.
0: Uh, Yeah. So, Scott, are a couple that we had in common here. I hate to, you know, say anything particularly praiseworthy about the film but uh promising young woman it's hard to to deny I think that that opening uh is pretty attention grabbing with a sort of uh you know being clued in on what this sort of con that uh that Carrie mulligan's character is running is you know where she pretends to be drunk uh she you know suckers uh well she doesn't really sucker anyone into doing it that's kind of the point right the the men just sort of flock to her um ready they can't to help take advantage of her yeah, ready to take advantage of her. And then, you know, the, the reveal, uh, as they're about to do their nefarious deed that, whoops, I'm actually not drunk. And you were about to take advantage of uh, a drunk woman. I think, yeah. um, you know, started this off with a, the, a lot of potential, um, that then was not really realized as the movie sort of, uh, had some serious tonal whiplash down the stretch, particularly, um, but, you know, it's hard to deny that it, it does grab you. And a lot of the movie does grab you, but um, yeah, uh, not necessarily in the best ways always. Uh, the Invisible Man, Scott, a movie that hasn't really come up uh, a lot, but that I am a, a big fan of um, and that I would like to rewatch. Actually, uh, this is another one that I want to rewatch, but sort of that opening sequence of um, yeah. Elizabeth Moss' character trying to make her escape from the home. Um, and, Absolutely. you know, again... Perfectly setting up um, the tale of domestic abuse and its its uh, its after effects that we are actually ab- about to see in this movie, and which made this so much more than I think a traditional uh, monster movie. And then Possessor, um, which you know ha- has an opening that um, is certainly attention grabbing is definitely a good adjective to describe this opening. Um, again, setting up the the body swap um situation that we are about to see but you know not only setting up just sort of the way that this works, but also a, an integral element of tazia voss's character, right? the fact that um she has started committing murders um with knives and uh, you know other unorthodox ways, basically making them uh more over the top and gory um whereas she could just be you know using a gun as she's instructed yeah. to do and um and you know just be cleaner making it cleaner yes um and you know we, we see you know the other side of that played out um in this opening sequence um that i think really sets the tone for the atmospheric uh piece of sci-fi horror to come so i uh, really liked that opening scene as well but
1: we yeah, share our winner here was.
0: we share our winner here scott um why don't you talk about it once again
1: Oh, Scott, you're you're spoiling me, letting me talk about so much in this podcast. Uh, Tenet, you know, I, I alluded earlier that I guess I kind of buried. You didn't. I did the opposite of burying my lead. I, I I spoiled it. I foreshadowed it earlier when I was talking about Ludwig Gorenson's score uh, and how from the moment the bass drops um, and kicks in and starts thumping in that opening scene at the Kiev Opera House siege. I'm totally in uh, on everything else this film throws at at me. Pretty much. And that's true, right? Like most intention grabbing. I remember I first saw this sort of prologue, if you will, to the movie um, uh, before Rise of Skywalker. And at the time, I think when we reviewed Rise of Skywalker, uh, I saw that in IMAX and they showed it before I think all the IMAX screenings of that movie. I said that that was the best thing that I watched that night. Um, And I stand by that today. (laughs) I don't think that's even that controversial of a statement now. Um, But overall it's an incredible opening action sequence you know maybe almost what you expect at this point from Nolan with this sort of like very you know standard almost set PC nature of his like opening scenes between you know Dunkirk and Dark Knight Rises and Dark Knight like he's done a bunch of movies like this where he has this you know magnificent set piece Inception as well he's done it in so many movies um and he does it again here in uh in Tenet and uh, look at I don't think it 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 Puts the pedal to the metal from the very beginning and doesn't really let up from from then on out. And it's just a blast.
0: Look, this was it may not have been the back to theaters moment for everyone that Christopher Nolan was hoping. But it was for me. Right. Again, just seeing, uh, you know, just those opening images of all of the soldiers running through the opera house, the score kicking Mm -hmm. in, just sort of the you know, pounding of their feet and the bass and everything. It was just like, all right, I'm watching a movie again in the theater again. Like it just cinema, baby. Feeling. Even if I didn't know exactly what was going on in the scene until much <laughs> later in the movie. Yeah, I definitely have to give Tenant some more love there. All right. Other end of the spectrum, Scott, most satisfying ending your honorable mentions.
1: Yeah, look, there's a lot here. We've talked about a lot of these already, so I'll just throw them out of the way. Like I just talked about Tenant, I would put Tenant in satisfying ending as well. I think that the way it wraps up uh, to the, to your point right here, you're talking about, you don't understand what's happening in that opening scene until much later on that much later on is like pretty much the end of the movie. When you fully understand what has happened in that, in that scene. And it's really satisfying when you, when you put that piece of the puzzle together, you probably don't have all the pieces put together by the end of the movie, the first time you watch it, but you do have that piece probably. Um, And it's really satisfying to put that together. I also think that um, sort of the, the, the real final note that the film leaves you on is an interesting thought. And you know, me, I, I I like a good puzzle box movie. I'm, you know, some of Chris Nolan's sort of open-ended conclusions to his movies have always been really appealing to me. Inception is one that I really appreciate and enjoy. I'm a big fan of the way that dark Knight rises ties up that trilogy um, with its final moment as well. And also true for tenant where it poses, um, you know, a particular, or I guess it, it very explicitly uncovers something about the nature of, of the movie. and, um, the organization that, uh, you know, that John David Washington's character is a part of, you know, from pretty early on in the in the film. And I found that very satisfying. Other ones um, would also in there at Mangrove. So when you know when you actually get the the trial reaches its conclusion, you know, spoilers, everyone's found not guilty. The way in which it portrays that scene and the emotion you get out of that scene. Extremely, extremely satisfying. Uh, we have a couple shared ones as well. So I'll, I'll take one of those um and that is first cow so a movie that sort of in the first 15 20 minutes um it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of people bounce off the film in the first 20 minutes. it's it's very again slow i don't think it's boring but it's very slow it has this sort of like inter it's like interwoven with this moment of this girl at some point in the future coming across these like two skeletons in the ground and you don't really get what the point of it is and it all comes back around at the end of the movie Um, After you followed, you know, uh, John Magaro and Orion Lee's characters over the course of the film and their journey and to learn that it's their skeletons in the ground and the manner in which they died together in that way, extremely, extremely satisfying conclusion to that movie, really emotional in a way that I didn't expect that film to get me. And it did. It really did. So, yeah, those are some of my honorable mentions.
0: Yeah, I also had First Cow uh, on mine, a freaky one that we share, Scott. Um, again, sort of the the double twist ending in a way that, you know, we have to get the satisfying kill of the villain. Yeah. Uh, well, that's the one,
1: too. It's right. like he, when you get into that that ending for Freaky, you're like, man, should they have yeah. just ended this movie when they, when they had the chance? Um, did it go on for too long? It turns out it didn't. It got what it wanted out of it.
0: Yeah, possessor. I've talked about how I feel like all the you know the pieces click into place in such a satisfying way, particularly at the very end of this movie and you know the final um, you know lines of dialogue where you realize you know call again a callback to earlier in the film and you realize that Tazia has basically lost her sense of guilt about anything that she is you know doing anymore, um, which maybe was the objective all along. Um, and that's, you know, a, a haunting note to leave you on, but, uh, I think faithful to the film that we've seen and I'm Your Woman, a movie I haven't really mentioned, but that I enjoyed, uh, directed by Julia Hart, starring Rachel Brosnahan, the final note, uh, just of Rachel Brosnahan driving away in a car as we hear, you know, the, the classic song The Weight, um, and, you know, her facial, um, sort of relief, um, that starts to wash over her and as, you know, as we see sort of the conclusion of this emotional journey that she's been going on, um, over the course of this movie, I think was, was very satisfying. Uh, Scott, your winner.
1: Yeah. Sound of metal. Maybe not a surprise that it pops up again, but I found the end of this movie. One of the most moving moments while wow, that sounded weird saying moving and then moving, but one of the most emotionally resonant moments of the year for me, um, sort of like the whole buildup after a climactic scene, um, going you know ruben trying to hunt down olivia cook's character and sort of have a reunion and then the ultimate conclusion of that is him you know leaving olivia cook's family house you know walking out into the square in paris and um just uh sort of taking his cochlear implants off and accepting the reality of his existence and i just found that really overwhelming
0: yeah, it's, it's a great ending for sure, as was the ending to the documentary Time, which was one of my favorite films of the year. I haven't really had an opportunity to bring it up yet. Um, but I think what is so satisfying about this ending in a way is that it's not fully satisfying. Um, and what I mean by that is, I think this could have easily been uh, just a story about this one person, right? And at the end, when Rob Rich is reunited with uh fox rich that could have been it right like we get the happy ending that um you know they're reunited after all this time fox rich achieved her goal of getting him out of prison and um you know that's the satisfying part of it but uh this movie provides just the right amount of catharsis while still grounding us in the fact that uh, hey there are a lot of families who are not going to get this moment of redemption the, this, you know, issue of mass incarceration is affecting so many people out there. And Rob Rich's story is just one of those, um, which has some semblance of, of a happy ending in the sense that they are reunited, but uh, which obviously was, was filled with a lot of strife in which many, many others are still having to experience. So uh, the fact that the movie, um, I think again, has a great build to it and that it was able to hit that perfect note of, uh, still leaving you with uh, a lot to chew on um, was was what was so satisfying about uh, The Ending to Time uh, to me, which was, uh, again, a brilliant film by Garrett Bradley that I think uh, everyone should see. Uh, Absolutely. All right. Our final award, Scott scenes and moments of the year 2020. We always like to do quite a few um, honorable mentions. Do you want to just hit yours uh, quickly here?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. The honorable mentions here is a scene that I alluded to earlier when I was talking about Vanessa Kirby as an honorable mention for best actress. And that is the scene, the sort of really long take scene early on in piece in pieces of a woman uh, where sh- her character gives birth. It is a really um, immersive scene to watch uh, again, really, really sort of gentle, but also traumatic scene, of course, with how it ends and again, it feels like a fully committed performance from Vanessa Kirby, who makes that scene electrifying and the way it was shot. You know, I'm a sucker for a long take. All our listeners of the podcast will know that um, a bit of a, a bit of a unique one in this, because usually you get long takes in uh, environments that don't involve giving birth. But here you have one where it does involve that. So uh, great, uh, great scene overall. Uh, a similar scene, I guess, in terms of long takes. I'll just get the other one out of the way here. Uh, that is a scene from the movie in the Netflix film extraction. I think still the most watched Netflix movie of all time, but there is a very long take um, while Chris Hemsworth is trying to escape Bali, which I believe is what I think. I think that's the location that they're in. I don't even remember at this point, um, but there's a long take to the scenes, a lot of action, maybe the more traditional type of long take scene that you might see uh, in a movie, really remarkable um, filmmaking, even if the rest of the film um you know, didn't quite live up to the long take overall. There's also, um, a scene from, uh, soul. that I think to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about, uh, a movie that I've, I kind of expressed earlier that I wished I could have talked about more on this episode, but couldn't really find the right place to fit this in. This is one where it does. There's a particular moment, you know, in the final act of the film where Joe finally, you know, gets to live out his dream of playing, you know, piano, you know, jazz piano as part of this, you know, famous jazz quartet. Um, and he walks out of the of the jazz club afterwards and he isn't fulfilled with the experience that he just had. He feels empty. He doesn't quite um, he doesn't quite know what else he needs to do to live out his dream. Like it's his passion. It's what he wants to do, but it didn't fulfill him. And it was so surprising to see this movie go in that direction and to paint this character in this particular way. And I just thought, again, to kind of echo something that I said earlier about a different film, I think it's really brave to take a film like soul from, a, from, from a studio like Pixar. Not that they haven't done brave things before, obviously, but really brave to sort of add something more complex than just, he did this thing that he was passionate about and he's happy about it now because life is more complex than that. Um, and I really appreciated that, uh, it surprised me in a really, in a really positive way. And, uh, I look forward to, um, Pixar's next film also coming out on Disney plus day and date Luca, I wonder if they're able to sort of recapture that same magic that I felt like they came up with with soul. And in particular, that scene, uh, a couple others, um, not surprising that a scene from Tenet would come up here. I talked about it's attention grabbing opening, which is one of you know absolutely one of the scenes. Um, but it'd be, I'd be remiss to not bring up a scene where the time inversion and time inverted nature of it is even more pronounced than in that opening Kiev scene, And that is the inverted fight scene in the Freeport. Um, I mean, this is like sort of like the hallmark of the movie almost. I mean, there's so many big set pieces. But, you know, if you were to say, what is the iconic scene from Tenet to most people? I think they'd say it's like when John David Washington's character is fighting himself. Uh, one birded, one forward. Um, incredible scene. I'm always kind of just stunned uh, when I watch it. And Ludwig of score off the hook. Absolutely incredible um, music for the Freeport sequences here as well. Uh, incredible, incredible scene. Um, from pretty much all aspects, visual effects, cinematography, score—all the technical pieces were perfect. Um, and the action, not too bad. And then I think uh, the only other one that I have that's unique uh, on my list, Scott, is the is a is a is a scene from a movie we haven't talked about yet. That's called that's Baby Teeth, another one of our sort of early quarantine films that didn't get um, didn't quite crack our lists at the end of the year. But as a movie that at the time, did really move me. Um, and one of the really I guess scenes from the early part of the year that, that just really got me was this final scene um, on the beach where you have sort of the, the main character. It's a flashback scene. Cause um, I, I think it, it might even be the last scene of the movie. Um, so I guess I, I wouldn't call this a satisfying ending, but um, it certainly was one that, that left something on you, I think overall. And when you realize that the main character of the film um, has died and you flashback to sort of this like, a choice that this character makes to live out, you know, one of their final days, how they lived it um, and how the camera lingers, you know, on certain elements of the scene, extremely satisfying um, in terms of uh, emotional richness overall. And so to me, it's a scene that has stuck with me, you know, even now, even though I, you know, that, that movie is not one that I think about a lot, but it's a scene that I think just, it, it, it produces a visceral reaction from me when I think about it. really powerful moment. Overall, So I think the rest of mine are, are, I believe, shared scenes um, for the most part. So I'll turn things over to you for now because I've been rambling for a while.
0: Sure. So, you know, some of mine, uh, the Silly Games uh, sing-along from Lover's Rock again. I talked about with David Byrne, it's American Utopia, you know, a moment that uh, that whole movie sort of made me miss concerts in a way. And I think this scene in particular had a similar effect of just, you know, making me... Miss uh, these sort of communal experiences um, with you know my friends uh, that COVID starved us of you know oftentimes a lot of times involving music um, it was very euphoric scene uh, the birthday party from Mank uh, you know wonderful exchange of dialogue um, that you know you really just uh, have to see for yourself um, to you know to get the full experience. Bob Wells' confession from Nomadland. Uh, It was hard to pick a favorite scene for Nomadland because I love the movie so much, but this scene towards the very end where this sort of uh, motivational speaker, this guy who is sort of like, uh, you know, the chief nomad who is kind of giving advice to a lot of the others, um, really opens up to Fern about his son's suicide. Um, Again, just such a raw moment uh, that feels like it has to have been uh, at least partially grounded in real life. Um, and yeah, that that you know scene really reached out and grabbed me. Um, possessor, the final sort of violent conflict we see that happens at Voss's house uh, is thrilling to watch. and it ends with, you know, this great twist where I realize that um, his son her son, uh, who has just you know killed her, um, has actually is actually also being possessed at the moment by Voss's boss um played by jennifer jason lee um as we hear her say pull me out as she's inside the the son's body um the uh never rarely sometimes always uh the scene that where the film gets its title from right, right where cindy flanagan's character goes to planned parenthood is asked a lot of questions about her pregnancy and through her answers which are one of those four words right there in the title um we all of a sudden, you know, get the reveal that the reveal slowly happens that, you know, she was uh, she was raped, basically. And that is um, how she uh, became pregnant. And I yeah, think but just, not
1: in uh, the stereotypical kind of way, to be clear, I think sure. it's like a lot more rich and nuanced around this whole notion mm-hmm. of like relationship violence and you know, people Emotional who you're and, yeah. yeah partners with, you know, committing sexual assault against their against against these women. Um, yeah, crazy
0: a uh, similar scene—the visit to HR from the assistant, where uh, Julia Garner's character goes to Matthew McFadden's office, and um, you know, is just uh, all of her concerns about sexism and everything that she raises to him are just, you know, poo-pooed um, by or him.
1: Worse than that, even.
0: Yeah, that I mean, she's yeah. he he comes out and basically says that um, you know that she's wrong about what she's saying and you know as you know as she's leaving hits her with the ultimate stinger of you know you're not his type um which is just you know shocking um and you know the, the one moment of like um the, the one really explicitly like um jarring moment in the assistant again a lot of it is sort of about the finality of um this type of behavior um but this scene really grabs you, and then sort of my runner-up, the one which I thought was going to be my winner for a while, with the last scene, the final montage of one night in Miami, set to Leslie Odom Jr. Um, singing uh, "A Change Is Going to Come" by Sam Cooke, um, very, very, um, you know, powerful. As we see um, how the change comes, um, you know, in in the lives of these people immediately, but you know, ultimately again with the postscript on screen. Uh, we see that a lot of the change happened after these people were gone, unfortunately, because a couple of them were killed um, at a young age um, and suffered untimely deaths. So, uh, yeah, very, very uh, memorable and powerful way to end um, that film. All right. Our winner, Scott, uh, they actually happen to come different, from the same, the same movie, but <laughs> different, different scenes. What's your choice uh, from this particular movie?
1: Yeah, mine is a scene that I've alluded to several times about this climactic moment in in Sound of Metal where Paul Racy, um, Joe character the leader of sort of the community that Ruben has been living in for a while after he starts to you know go deaf and then Riz Ahmed's Ruben, you know Ruben has sold his RV and and a lot of his equipment to pay for these cochlear implants which he hopes are going to Know cure his deafness and allow him to take back up his music career and get back together with Olivia Cook's character, and um he does this and you know you can you can tell that it's you know it's not you know in spite of it like you're just kind of like begging him when you're watching the movie at least I was to to not go down this path and and Paul Racy's character has been you know doing that in the background of the film so far and then there's this confrontation when Ruben returns from having uh, the cochlear implants. um, uh, inserted into into his uh, into his ears, into his brain. And uh, he ha- he has this conversation with Joe where he said, you know, Joe says, you know, one of the central tenets I told you about living in this community is that you have to accept being deaf and you can't try to correct that. Like, it's just such a core part. I can't, you can't have you distracting the community from pushing forward in their lives by looking backwards. And he learns the hard way that Joe, as much as Joe loves him, Uh, And it is clear, I think, from the conversation and everything else in the film that Joe does love Ruben. You know, the community comes before the individual in this case. And, uh, you know, that obviously comes as a shock to him and this very emotionally raw scene um, on both ends where Joe has to make the hard decision to kick Ruben out. And Ruben, you know, has to, like his deafness, he has to accept this reality. Um, And he fights back against it pretty hard in a pretty uh, tumultuous conflict. And it is really sort of the epitome of both performances for me um and, and why they are Oscar worthy performances in my book and why this movie is so powerful.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, look, it wasn't at the very, very top of my list. Sound of metal wasn't, but this movie has sat with me um since seeing it, uh, you know, as much as any, any film this year has certainly. Um, And, you know, obviously it, it did make my, top 10 list fairly, fairly highly. And, you know, the scene that sticks out to me and which kind of just ultimately snuck up on me towards the end of the year as I was thinking about my best scenes of the year is uh, in the the climax of this film when uh, Ruben is at Lou's house, Lou being his girlfriend played by Olivia Cook. He goes there with the hope that they will be reunited and they are for a short time. Um, but sort of, you know, things start to come to a head when Ruben's cochlear implants are not working the way that he hoped they would, and he's getting overwhelmed, and it all sort of, uh, the realization really sinks in during this scene where Lou steps to the piano to sing with her father, and uh, she sings very beautifully, um, but Ruben, to Ruben, it sounds, you know, all distorted and a mess, and um, not at all like he would have hoped, again, given that music sort of was One of the two things that he wanted to get back to and one of the the main reasons that he decided to seek out conclear implants, his realization, just watching it on his face, his realization that things are never going to be the same again, not only for him, you know, hearing, uh, for his hearing, but also for him and Lou. um, And, you know, the the next scene, uh, the next couple of scenes, see them basically deciding to go their separate ways um, and end their relationship. and yeah, it's it's very it's a very sad scene, obviously, but uh, just really just a gut gut punch and and made me feel um, stronger emotions than just about anything um, I saw this year. Um, and so it, it was the one that again, like I said, snuck up on me a little bit, a little bit surprised me in the end. But uh, this was my choice for for scene of the year. Uh, I think it's it's brilliant and sound of metal a must watch. All right, Scott, that will conclude our award show. I think we probably came in a little bit under the Oscars time. So I guess that's a, a victory. Um, but I guess we'll we'll find out if they trim anything out of the Oscars this year uh, in the Zoom era. But probably not. I
1: suspect they won't. Um, They'll find some way to make it longer.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Some Like It, Scott. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget to, be, to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash pods. Uh, Even if you can't support us over there, though, uh, please like, rate, review, subscribe, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you will be back for our next episode on which we will be turning our attention firmly to this year in movies 2021 as we choose our most anticipated films of the year 2021, which will hopefully all come out. Uh, But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time.